pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. President Lyons would like to take roll. Uh, Commissioner Walker is excused. Commissioner Benedicto? Present. Commissioner Yanez? Present. Commissioner Byrne? Here. Commissioner Yee? Here. Vice President Carter Oberstone is en route. And President Lyons, you have a quorum. Also with us tonight, we have Chief Scott from the San Francisco Police Department and Executive Director Paul Henderson from the Department of Police Accountability. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our January 10th meeting. Happy New Year to everyone. Um, for today, I'm going to ask that we adjourn today's meeting in memory of the Oakland police officer, uh, Officer Tuan Lee, who was killed in the line of duty last month. As we know, Officer Lee served and protected his community for four years. Our condolences, thoughts, and prayers are with his family and friends and colleagues as, at this time. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and begin. Line item one, public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda, but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the police commission. Under police commission rules of order during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public, but may provide a brief response. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in either of the following ways. Email the secretary of the police commission at sfpd.commission at sfgov.org or written Comments may be sent via U.S. Postal Service to the Public Safety Building located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 95148. Go ahead. Good afternoon and thank you. My name is Chris Ward-Klein and today I'm going to give you the tools for San Francisco to be successful. In 1968, there was the Omnibus, Omnibus Control and Safe Streets Acts of 1968 that prohibits the unauthorized non-consensual interception of wire oral or electronic communications by government agencies, as well as private parties, and established procedures for obtaining warrants to authorize wiretapping by government officials. The U.S. Supreme Court in Carpenter versus the United States upheld that legal doctrine in 2018. Several in this city and county have placed people, to include me, on a wiretap bug illegally. I'm asking this commission to assist in removing the illegal wiretaps and bugs on every person in the community immediately. Let me be very clear, SFPD, or any other agency does not have a warrant on me for any purposes. Various technologies such as FirstNet, RGB Spectrum, to name a few, meant to be used legally are being used to, to divide the city. These systems operate by sending messages through the public utilities, phone, electronics, streetlights, et cetera, and data saved with the Public Utilities Commission. It is very apparent that these illegal wiretaps and bugs were even placed on the police commission which is grossly unethical and illegal, um, I would suggest calling the Department of Justice to investigate if they are not already. The re reason retailers' restaurants are closing and running away from San Francisco is because their IT teams are required to report this conduct to their respective corporate headquarters. The solution is very simple, but taming greed, prejudice, and hatred is the hardest task in the history of mankind. Take off the Ill illegal wiretaps and bugs immediately if you want San Francisco to thrive again. Thank you. Good afternoon and uh, Happy New Year. <clears throat> My name is Paul Allen. As I asked in a memo that I filed with you on Monday, <clears throat> will anything short of a superior court order cause the police commission to comply with the city charter? 
the commission willfully fails to comply with a city charter provision that requires it to set forth its legal authority, purpose, and goals, all subject to review by the, the mayor and board of supervisors. After consulting the websites of big city police commissions with similar remits and statutory requirements, three months ago I sent you a draft of the entirety of what the charter would require. Sergeant, could I receive the overhead? Let's look at my list of the purpose and goals first. I hope you recall my list. I don't think see anything controversial about this. But how would the commission and the public be served by the adoption of this sort of uh, set of guidelines? Let's take an example. Inadequate police staffing. If the commissioners had agreed on this sort of list, they might look to point number one, the first goal of the commission, one would hope, being to enhance public safety, and the fifth, balancing the costs and benefits of DGOs, to ask itself, given that it might take years to reach full staffing goals, let's do a 60-day audit of our DGO-required record-keeping requirements to see if we can free up more officer time for real police work without compromising the principles that gave rise to the DGO. It's past time for the commission to be accountable, to comply with the city charter. It shouldn't take a court order to do so. Perhaps the problem is that there is no consensus among commissioners on the purpose or goals among, uh, uh, as, as to what you should be trying to accomplish. But this is your job. This, you should dedicate some time to this. Comply with the city charter. Thank you, Mr. Allen, for your hard work and diligence with this. It's my understanding that um, something has been drafted, so hopefully within the next uh, few weeks we will get the matter agendized for the full commission to review the document and edit, make necessary edits and receive public input at that time. Um, my apologies, I've been out for a few months, but this is back on my radar, so I appreciate your diligence and hard work. Good evening. Good evening. And Happy New Year's, everyone. <laughs> Although it's not a really not a happy New Year's for me, um, I'd like to use the overhead. <clears throat> My son Aubrey Abracasa, who was murdered August fourteenth, two thousand six. This thing is still his case is unsolved. Um, we're still worried about how much money is being paid out for. Uh, homicide victims for the people to come forth. There was supposed to be a way for people to come forth to find a way to pay them pay money to um, um, people to come forth, just a little bit of money, and I'm waiting for that to happen. It was supposed to happen. We brought it up uh, in several conversations last time we were here. And last time I was here, that um, we were going to find a way and to put it on the agenda about unsolved homicides. Again, I'm here again this year letting people know this is what I'm going through every year. It's been 16, 17 years. I, am, I have stopped counting, um, but I still remember my son laying in a casket, lifeless. I still remember the autopsy of this beautiful face being torn apart by an autopsy examination. I'm still waiting for justice for my child. You have all the names of the perpetrators who murdered my child, 
if you have all of this, why can't we get a conviction? You say, because no one wants to come forth. There's ways to have people come forth. Money talks. I come here every year. This is a new year. I'm here again today. And am I going to wait a whole year again for justice? Good evening and happy new years to you all. My name is Jay Connor B. Ortega, and while I'm not here as a candidate, I am here as a San Francisco resident. I want to start by saying thank you to all the men and women who are members of the San Francisco Police Department. Truly, without our officers, our city would descend into chaos. And at this time, I do want to offer my condolences as well to the friends and family of Officer Lee from the OPD. Even though Oakland is not within our jurisdiction, it is never a comforting sight to see our officers be killed in a live action. And as a resident, uh, it always makes me happy to see officers band together in a time of need, especially since we're two different counties. But condolences to their friends and family. I didn't get a chance then, but I want to take this time now to say SFPD did a fantastic job when it came to their participation with APEC. As someone who attended APEC, it was the first time, as I stated before, I felt entirely safe. However, with us meeting this new year, I want to echo what I have stated in the previous year, that this commission should expect me at every meeting to continue to remind the commission that the majority of San Francisco residents, such as myself, support SFPD and will continue to keep you all on notice. Thank you. President Issa is the end of public comment. Thank you. Next item, please. Line item two, consent calendar, receive and file action. Family code 6228, incident report release. Police Commission's report of disciplinary actions, fourth quarter 2023. SFPD's third quarter document protocol memo. DPA third quarter document protocol memo. SFPD's third quarter non-city entity live monitoring report. SFPD's 1421 and SB 16 monthly report. And DPA's 1421 and SB 16 monthly report. I get a motion. Motion to receive and file. Second. All second. Thank you. On the motion, Commissioner Benedicto, how do you vote? Yes. Benedicto was yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. The motion passes. Line item three, adoption of minutes, action for the meetings of November 1st, November 8th, and December 5th, 2023. Motion. Motion to adopt the minutes. Second. Are you? Oh, thank you. On the motion, Commissioner Benedicto, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And, and President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have five yeses. Line item five, Chief's report. Weekly crime trends and public safety concerns provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Chief Scott. Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Good evening, uh, President Elias and Commission and public uh, direct, Executive Director Henderson, and Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, Commissioner Elias, welcome back. Let me start out with the 
last year. We ended uh, last year on a, on a positive note, almost across the board. We did have a couple of areas that we were up in crime, robberies being one. Um, but almost across the board, there were some reduction in crime, including homicides. We ended up 2023, uh, two homicides below 2022. So that's a positive. Car break-ins were significant lo significantly lower. Um, burglaries were lower. So we ended, we ended with a positive note. And I'd like to thank the members of the San Francisco Police Department, all the, the, our members, for really their efforts, not only uh, through APEC, but also through the holiday season. We had a lot of positive momentum going into the holiday season. And we did um, some very proactive measures in terms of abating retail theft, um, shopping patrols in the shopping areas and the, and, the, and the corridors around the city. And I believe that paid off dividends. So we're going to try to carry that into 2024. So far, um, although we're only one week into the year, and it's very early in the year, but the good news is that overall it's a 49% reduction in part one crime. That's a 39% uh, in violent crime and 50% in pop property crime. So again, very early in the year. And we know that these numbers fluctuate greatly early in the year, but it's better to start off with a negative than a positive. Over the week, we had one homicide that occurred uh, last week, and that was at uh, 16th Street and Terry Francois. No suspect is in custody on that. That was a shooting. And we will continue to investigate that. If the public has any information, please call our anonymous line at 415-575-4444. We also had three non-fatal shootings that caused injury to four victims. And those are the only shootings that we have had uh, this year so far. Overall, uh, again, just the first week, but there's a 39% reduction in gun violence this first week of the year. In terms of uh, some of the more notable incidents, I talked about the shooting. And one of the shootings, one of the four victims that were shot was a incident that happened on January 1st at 11.49 p.m. at the 1000 block of Connecticut Street in the Bayview District. Uh, there were two victims and both were children. Family was asleep inside their residence when the victim's father's father heard gunshots coming from outside. Two children within the residence sustained gunshot wounds and were transported in stable condition, non-life-threatening non injuries, fortunately. Uh, victims were eight months and seven years old. That case is still under investigation of SFPD investigators and um, no arrest at this time. Second shooting was at Turk and Taylor on January 1st at 12.18 a.m. This was just after uh, midnight. The victim was a passenger in a vehicle and suddenly realized they had been shot. Police uh, were in the area and were flagged down and an ambulance was summoned. The victim was transported in stable condition. That is also a case that's still under investigation with no arrests. Um, other significant incidents, we did have two fatal collisions. Um, actually, these aren't fatal collisions, um, but two major injury collisions. One on Eddy Street of Van Ness in the Northern District. This was on January 4th at 2.28 a.m. Officers approached a double parked vehicle, found that one of the occupants was wanted. As officers attempted to have the wanted suspect exit the vehicle, the vehicle fled. Suspect collided with another vehicle, and all three occupants fled on foot but were located and taken into custody. Two guns were recovered from the vehicle. Uh, there was also a stabbing 
that occurred at the unit block of 6th Street in the Tenderloin. This occurred on January 6th at 6.40 p.m. The subject and victim were in their building and are acquainted with each other. As the victim exited the elevator near his unit, the subject stabbed him with a knife. The victim was arrested at the scene, and I mean the suspect was arrested at the scene. And just one other notable incident, this occurred 24th and Mission, or 3200 block of 24th Street in the Mission District. This was uh, sometime after midnight, we believe, on January 1st. The victim locked his doors of his jewelry shop the night before, and on New Year's Day, he found out that the lock had been cut, doors pried open, and a significant uh, value of jewelry had been taken. That is still under investigation. Uh, the supervisor of that district, Supervisor Ronan, hosted a town hall for the residents. Uh, that was a good turnout. Captain Amy Hurwich and Lieutenant Tam and Lieutenant Anderson attended. And uh, the public is asked for information if you know anything about this crime or anybody that might be connected to it. Again, the number is 415-575-4444. There was a multi-vehicle arson that occurred on the 300 block of Park Street in the Ingleside District. This was on New Year's Eve at 928. An unknown suspect was seen pouring gasoline on four parked vehicles. That person then ignited the vehicles and continued walking westbound on the 300 block of Park toward the 300 block of Holly Park Circle. Suspect then poured gasoline on the front porch stairs of a residence and lit the home on fire. This residence at the time had over 30 people in it who were having a celebration, including 15 children who were present for a New Year's Eve party. Um, 911 was called, the fire was extinguished, and luckily nobody was injured. This is under investigation, um, and no arrests have been made at this time. And the last significant event, we have had a series of ATM-related uh, burglaries. We had another one uh, this past week at the 3700 block of Balboa Street. This was on January 3rd at 3.40 a.m. The witnesses observed a vehicle drive through glass doors, a glass door slash window at the Bank of America. When officers arrived, they observed that an ATM had been taken. And this is an ongoing investigation. We do believe that's a part of a series because we've had others with that same MO. There was a stunt driving event uh, that occurred on the 7th this past weekend, various locations. Uh, thankfully, SFPD officers were ready for them as we had received information that they were coming into the city. Officers deployed through our stunt driving response protocols. Uh, approximately 100 vehicles arrived in the city and were met by SFPD officers. The group proceeded to the area of Chase Center, but were met by additional officers who disrupted the group as they attempted to set up a stunt driving event. All of the vehicles left the area by 2.45 a.m. and went back across the Bay Bridge to different cities. And um, last thing, just two fatal traffic collisions. One was on Junipero Serra and Palmetto on January 1st at 10.26 a.m. That driver was found to be intoxicated. That was a solo collision. The second was on South Van Ness and 18th Street in the Mission District on January 4th at 10.15 a.m. And that one is pending investigation. And that uh, last thing, our report is just the Drug Market Agency Coordination Center, just the progress on that. Um, last year, there were over 119,610 grams of fentanyl that has been seized, which is the equivalent of 59.8 million lethal doses of fentanyl. Um, there were over 
900 arrests for drug dealers and uh, over 1,000 arrests for, for drug users. So the DMAC operation is ongoing uh, for the week, uh, the first week of the year, uh, yielded 40, 52 arrests and 1,400 grams of narcotic seized. And that concludes my report. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Yee. Uh, thank you very much there, uh, President Cindy Elias. Uh, I just want to um, thank the chief, the staff, and the membership for the outstanding work uh, during the APEC uh, conference here and into the holiday seasons uh, keeping us uh, safe. I, uh, looking at the report, it looks like crime has uh, gone down under those uh, period of time. So for 2024, I wish everybody and the, uh, the chief and his staff and uh, members a great uh, 2024 and hopefully uh, every, every, all members come back uh, safely at the end of the day. Thank you very much, Chief. Thank you very much, uh, staff, and uh, all the members. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Byrne. Um, thank you, uh, President Elias. Um, Chief, um, there was a series of, uh, was it burglaries along Clement Street in the Richmond District? Uh, could you update the public as to what, if any, uh, thing the police department is uh, uh, going to do in response? I know a lot of the merchants were uh, extremely upset. I don't have uh, any information as far as there. As far as I know, Commissioner, there have not been any arrests on that. I know those investigations are all open and ongoing. As far as the patrol response along Clement Street, there's a couple of uh, things that are going on. Passing calls, extra patrol. We have put uh, SFPD ambassadors on Clement Street as well. And, you know, this is one where we hopefully will be able to solve the crime. You know, burglaries uh, along that area are definitely, um, they're not up, but this is significant. So nothing to report as far as an arrest at this point, investigation ongoing, but the passing calls have been increased and the, the uh, ambassadors are, are deployed on Clement, along Clement. Thank you. Um, the other um, thing over, over the holidays and even last weekend, uh, I had a um, chance to be in uh, the Stonestown uh, shopping mall, and um, I, I was amazed uh, how calm and peaceful, and, and uh, assuming I thought the death of the mall, it was very alive and vibrant. Um, uh, it, I know people talk about what's going on in downtown in, in uh, Union Square, but it was amazing. Uh, uh, to see the revival of Stonestown and and obviously uh, the problems that were there last year didn't seem at all the I mean the um, the mood of the place was absolutely wonderful uh, um, and I, I did see uh, on every occasion a police car parked uh, <laughs> uh, on the front side where it's tough to find parking but the police car wasn't worried about that um, um, but having said that it it, it was a a wonderful thing for all, all San Franciscans to see, and hopefully, that whatever it was, gang activity, whatever it was last year, it is long since gone. But uh, it, it was nice, a, a wonderful mix of people, uh, all ages. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. 
Vice President Carter Overstone. Thank you, President Elias, and thank you, Chief, for the report. I did want to just join Commissioner Yee in thanking Chief Scott and the entire department for uh, its work over APEC. Um, just extraordinary the amount of work that had to go into it, coordination with many other law enforcement agencies, and it was an incredibly high profile and important event for the city and, and for the world. And <clears throat> pardon me, just wanted to, to thank you and, and all the members of SFPD for, for all of the hard work and, and overtime that went into keeping the city safe during this extraordinary time. Um, I did want to ask you, Chief, um, for an update, as I often do, about the staffing, <clears throat> the staffing in the Tenderloin around um, arresting drug users, whether that's the same that it's been for the last few months, um, eight officers and one sergeant, um, plus we'll call it three FTE, you know, other officers, um, uh, on other shifts, is, is that still generally the, the staffing? Yeah, the, the squad that does the bulk of the arrests is uh, the one sergeant and eight. Um, they are supplemented at times by other officers, particularly the, the Healthy Streets Operations Center officers, which is four officers sometimes, depending on whether they have a vac uh, absence or not, and a sergeant. And um, then on the night side, there is a tenderloin squad. It's a uh, crime reduction squad that they do a little bit of everything. So depending on what the issues are, um, which could be anything from violent crime to addressing uh, both sales and use of drugs. So, but they're not, they're not assigned to the, to the drug market agency operations center. They're assigned to tenderloin. So the core group is still the one in eight. Great. And remind me, was it May when we started this May new focus on, on users? Um, and at the time that we started that, this uh, commission was overwhelmed with public comment and presented with uh, reams and reams of studies and white papers, all concluding essentially the same thing, that redirecting resources to arresting drug users would increase overdose deaths without any appreciable uh, improvement in public safety. Uh, also at that time, we had before us a uh, report commissioned by a Blue Ribbon panel that the city put together, that SFPD sat on that Blue Ribbon panel that had an eight-point plan for how to deal with a drug epidemic. It didn't include arresting drug users. It didn't include a role for law enforcement, namely arresting drug dealers. Um, but we went forward with it, nevertheless, despite the evidence. Um, and I, I just read in the Chronicle that this year San Francisco set a new all-time record for overdose deaths just through November. So not even including the December numbers, we, we've, we've set a new all-time record, and we'll see what the numbers say for December. Is it, is it time to abandon this approach? We were told that it would be a failure. We were to told that it would have catastrophic consequences. We've seen the conditions on the street. We've seen the overdose deaths. At what point do we say, this hasn't worked, we need to use our resources in a better way? I don't um, agree with taking a 
piece of research and then extrapolating that to equate that because we're arresting people when they use drugs on public streets, that that is the reason for our overdose death. I mean, I, I'm sure researchers hopefully will look at this and see what, if any, impact that this strategy has. However, I would argue that taking 59 million doses, deadly doses, mind you, of fentanyl off the street probably made a difference. And people, when they are possessing drugs and using drugs in the streets, particularly fentanyl, um, interrupting or disrupting that activity probably made a difference. And I don't know that we can measure that, um, but I do know that we saved a lot of lives. So I, I, the bottom line on this is I think we'll probably agree to disagree of whether or not this is a reason for overdose deaths increasing. I believe fentanyl is something that we've never dealt with before. This deadly, with this volume and this ease of, of, of obtaining it, the, the cheap prices and, and everything that plays into this equation. So I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't agree with that assessment. And I don't think it's necessarily fair to take a study and then extrapolate that and say, because we're arresting people, overdose deaths are higher. I, I just don't think that's a fair assessment. So I'm going to agree to disagree with you on that. And also just, again, reiterate that this strategy also includes seizing and taking drugs off the street, which I think, I believe, had an impact. And who knows what that number would have been if we weren't doing the things that we're doing. <coughs> Excuse me. But, you know, that's my response to your question. Right. Well, we certainly do agree that drug interdiction of large amounts of fentanyl is a good thing. but. That, that wasn't accomplished through arresting drug users and the relatively tiny amounts they possessed at the time they were using. That was done, I presume, through arresting the, the dealers and suppliers of the drugs. So those are two very, very different things. And I, I'm certainly not prepared to draw a causal line between you know, us assigning 12 FTE officers to arresting drug, deal, uh, drug users and, and the increase in overdose deaths. We, you're, you're right. We don't know for sure. But we do know, neither of us are public health experts, but what we, we do know is there were a lot of public health uh, papers published in academic journals that we were all presented with, and they all told us that if we did this, it would spike overdose deaths and it wouldn't improve public safety, and that is what's happened as a result of this program. So... I, I guess you're right, we'll have to agree to disagree, but I, I just wonder how many more months of these tragic overdose numbers without improvements in public safety, how many more of these months we're going to have to go through before we say, hey, maybe we could use these 12 officers in a more productive way on behalf of the city. Thank you. That's everything for me. If I could just request to just, not to, this is not a counter argument, I, I'll just say this in terms of the public health component of this. You know, we are at the table every day with the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Uh, we're advised by them, they're at the table, we're, we're creating strategies with them, and you know, they, they do what they do in terms of the public health piece of this. A part of the answer, my answer to your question is, when and if we get a solution to deal with what's happening on the streets in terms of people using drugs in public, killing themselves in public, 
when we get a solution that's not a law enforcement-based solution, then I'm all for that. But at this point, we don't have that. And we've asked, begged, screamed about, if you don't want the police to do it, give us an alternative. And nobody has come up with that answer. Well, it sounds to me like we need to agendize this to sort of see where we are and see sort of cost-benefit analysis of this approach, um, because it does appear that law enforcement doesn't seem to be solving the issues that we're having. So perhaps we can agendize it and ask DPH to come and uh, before the commission and give us some of the answers that we also are seeking. So with that, um, go ahead and we'll put that on the list to agendize. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, President Elias. Uh, Chief, uh, in addition to or along the same lines with the policing enforcement strategy, um, uh, there's a recent article uh, that pointed out the, that post, you know, midnight, one o'clock, when when that heavy-handed enforcement um, is reduced, uh, a lot of that activity returns to the same spaces, right? And uh, some of the activity is being displaced to other neighborhoods, uh, and and I wanted. Uh, in addition to obviously we're going to agendize this and have a, a deeper conversation about what proposed solutions are out there which there have been proposed solutions like cart and the lead program which we know can be effective but uh what is your strategy to contain uh, that displacement and that uh, early morning activity that continues to contribute to the the issues that uh, Vice President Carter Oberstone just raised uh, something that I had also raised last year um, and that I hope we do get to talk about is what is the, the tangible outcome that is expected outside of arrest for fentanyl and possession of fentanyl, uh, which, you know, seems to continue and will continue to be flooding the streets because the, the turnstile of providers or people offering those substances is that there's a long line waiting. So we're not gonna arrest our way out of this. At minimum, how do we contain that displacement into the early morning hours and into the or adjacent neighborhoods? Uh, is there a plan in place? There is. Um, so what has developed since November, we have added uh, leadership on the evening side of this operation. We now have seven day a week coverage with night captains. Those captains um, also have the, the benefit of, of a non-police resource, Urban Alchemy, that is doing what they do. Uh, that started in November as well. So the shifting of resources to address the nighttime issues is, is a process that has already started. We have shifted some resources. I mentioned the, the Tenderloin Crime Reduction Team. Um, our our daytime squad, we're going to shift some of those resources to nights. You know, we have to follow the MOU and the, the agreements as far as scheduling. But the bottom line to this is when we're there, things are better. That's a combination of enforcement, and when we're there, usually people scatter. Um, this plan has been designed to, to happen in phases. So phase one was, you know, UN Plaza, and it was mainly a daytime operation. If you look at the, if you go right now to 7th Street, 7th and Mission, 7th and Market during the daytime, 7th and Mission looks better all the time. 
Um, the idea is to once we can stabilize a block or a street is to now go to the next phase. The next phase is deeper in the Tenderloin, High Street, Turk, uh, Golden Gate, and night operations. So we have already started doing night operations because enforcement is a part of this. The other part is if we can get a block stabilized is to hold the ground by hopefully non-police resources where we can do that. Urban Alchemy has played a big part in that since they have a night crew now. Uh, that is working where they are deployed. The other thing that has been a, a huge help for us is, is Code Tenderloin. Those are uh, practitioners, I believe, that they're called non-police resources, and they're out there trying to get people off the streets into whatever shelter services they can get them. And they don't mind working with the, excuse me, they don't mind working with the, <coughs> excuse me, the officers that are, that are working that area. So those are the things that we're doing on the nighttime. Code Tenderloin is mainly a nighttime operation. Um, we've had some success working with them, just getting people off the street, not arresting them, but get them off streets in the shelter, that type of thing. So it's going to be a combination. And just, just to be clear, I am not one that says this whole solution is going to be arrest-based. It, it can't be. But I am one to say that we play a part in it, and there is a, a, I think, a need and an expectation to not allow what we see on the streets with the, the drug use, the open-air drug use. So that is a part of the strategy. It's not the, it's not the end-all, be-all, but it is a part of the strategy. But that's how we're going to address this. So we're in that next phase now. We're doing the night operations. We're doing a lot more at night through, it's not 24 hours yet, but through the wee hours of the morning. Uh, it's still a challenge because there is a displacement, but we have had some success in holding ground. The other part of this too is safe passage is a part of the strategy. There's a lot of activity along in and around the area, the theaters, the, the people that are you know trying to enjoy the city and the businesses and the restaurants and all that. So. Officers are assigned to safe passage, and if Tenderloin gets so busy where they have an emergency, we will call officers in from other parts of the city, like we do for any big event in the city. So that has been working quite well. Uh, it's helping. It's, it's still a challenge, but it's helping. So the night is our focus right now, but we don't want to lose what we've gained during the daytime, uh, particularly the UN Plaza area, the skate park, and all those the pro, you know, things that have happened have really been a positive, and things look a lot better. Uh, but nighttime is still a challenge, but that is our strategy. So you mentioned a phased uh, approach. Is there a, a final phase where we shift the, the strategy? Is that something that you're projecting? Stable, when, they, when the area is stable where we can do that, we will. What we have found during the first phases of this operation is we'll go in, and it's not hard to clear a block. We clear block at any time, but as soon as we leave, that block repopulates. We see that over and over again. So we have to stabilize, and it repopulates with the drug sales and the drug use and the other illegal activities. So that's why enforcement has to be a part of this. Uh, you know, the, the reality is there's a lot of people out there hustling to, to make a living, and that's how they do it. So we have to, we have to disrupt that activity as, as much as we can do it, and enforcement is a part of that. So we get an area stable, and hopefully we can Go that, do that block by block, and when we're able to change strategies and lessen the enforcement needed, then we will do that. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner uh, Thank you, President Elias. Chief, um, 
Are you still getting complaints from families in the Tenderloin about the quality of life as to what's going on? Yes. And are, aren't, are most of those families families of color? Many of them, yes. Yeah, immigrant families that recently arrived that, that, can, uh, that, can, afford to, that can at least afford to live in that part of San Francisco. Many of them, yes. yes. And, and after the western side of the city, isn't it true that they have the highest uh, number of children in San Francisco? Yes. And, and so I understand, uh, uh, as they said, we, we can't arrest our way out of, out of the problem. But at the same time, you know, those people, which tend to be voiceless because a lot of them can't vote in elections in San Francisco because they're not citizens of the United States. I mean, they're immigrants, they're refugees. And the, the, the dilemma is that, you know, when you meet them in the Tenderloin, they'll, they'll tell you they want. They want the police presence there. They want something done about the people that are defecating in their streets. And streets where no other part of San Francisco would this be allowed to happen. And so you're, you're between the rock and the hard place, aren't you? Because you know you can't arrest yourself out of the problem, but at the same time you have a duty to those citizens of San Francisco to try to improve their quality of life. Uh, that that is that's true. I mean, we, we we I go to a lot of community meetings, and I'm in the Tenderloin a lot in terms of walking, talking to people, um, including the officers and. There is a a, desire, a a call for us to do our jobs, basically. I'll just put it that simply. And that includes all sides of this equation. I mean, a lot of the quality of life uh, type of issues, like some of the issues that you, you're meant, that you just mentioned, is driven by drug activity. People that aren't necessarily in, in uh, the right state of mind to make decisions that prevent them from defecating, urinating on the streets. and things of that nature, and we see it day in and day out. So yes, we, we do need to do what we do. We need to enforce where enforcement is, is, is necessary and enforcement is appropriate, and that's a part of it. And that includes the whole gamut of this, this issue, so yeah. And I think this is, again, will be ripe for discussion when we agendize it, so thank you for the speech. I think, again, this will be really good info, or input when we agendize and are able to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you. Sergeant, public comment, please. At this time, the public is welcome to make public comment regarding line item four, the chief's report. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium. Um, again, I got what I was going to say, but um, I just want to bring up my son's case number. <clears throat> my son was uh, murdered August 14, 2006. And those of you that may be out here know and can bring awareness to the unsolved homicide. My son's case number is 0608620380. 0608620380. I also want to bring up about last time when we were, when I was here last year, we brought about uh, again the unsolved homicides and that we can find some kind of ways for the perpetrators to come, the tipsters to come through. And they were saying that they can probably get investigators from Paul Henderson's, uh, his, his investigators to investigate our son's cases, our children's cases. That was brought up back 
last year. And I was wondering what was going on with that and if anything can be said about that because that was brought up last year. I stand here and I listen that probably, you, you remember that? Why is everyone looking? I remember you shaking your head when, when, um, when that was brought up last time. I am. I only pause because we're not supposed to respond for these things, but yes, uh, I can have someone from my office talk to you tonight and I can give you an update and tell you about what that process looks like in terms of the role that we play. We don't investigate the actual crimes. We but play a was, different role, but I can have someone speak to you directly right now. Okay, fine, but I just wanted to bring awareness that this was said. Look back at your videos. I have it. I made a copy of it that they can investigators from there since we can't find an investigator to come in uh, that you can hire to, to solve these cases. So then why won't um, investigators from, from your department come in and solve and help solve? So I'm just bringing that up again and please don't brush it off. Please, I've been coming here too long. Please don't do that. Thank you. Any member of the public has any information regarding the murder of Aubrey Avacasa, you can call the anonymous 24-7 tip line at 415-575-4444. All right. I firstly want to thank the chief for the report presenting this past week, and I'm glad that we have a downward trend for this week, the past week. I agree with the chief when he says that fentanyl taken off the streets is thousands of lives spared. Now, if anyone has wondering why we continue to surpass the previous overdose, overdose death record, it's because of how much longer the drug market continues to exist, which is why we're seeing ballot measures that are beginning to strip away from this commission's power. Now, if we're gonna discuss articles, Seattle tried the approach of removing police intervention, and now they had to reverse course and allow their police to be involved because it was an absolute policy failure. Now, SFPD's job is to reinforce security and safety for the city. And just to be clear, it's not SFPD's job to be nurses, it's the board's job to provide treatment and funding plans, so that, but they have not done that. So I say keep up the much necessary work to enforcement and to intervening whenever we can, however we can, to save lives, even if it requires removing people, including drug users, from the environment that they're found in. Thank you. Paul Allen again. Uh, just a brief comment on the, on the drugs colloquy section uh, with an eye toward this being agendized apparently. Uh, section 4.1041 of the charter provides that the commission shall adopt rules and regulations consistent with this charter and ordinances of the city and county and of course of the state. Um, so in that context it's odd to say uh, at best to hear commissioners talk about the law not being enforced. This commission has no authority, none, to direct SFPD or even to cajole F SFPD not to enforce the law, point number one. Number two, I think we can, any informed observer I think would agree that we can't uh, arrest our way out of this uh, individually, nor can we individually treat our way out of this, but it requires both. Uh, 
And uh, I would hope that when the matter is uh, agendized that um, other public officials are called in, including the health department, but perhaps uh, others, because as you all well know, it is not simply the police commission that has uh, influence over how SFPD operates. It is the mayor, the board of supervisors, and obviously the chief subject as well to uh, public, I think you would probably agree, clamoring for um, improved uh, public safety conditions on the streets. Thank you. That is the end of public comment. Line item five, DPA director's report discussion. Report on recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Director Henderson. Thank you, good evening. Uh, so far with uh, DPA, we have opened seven cases this year and we've closed six cases. So currently on the docket for 2024, we have 311 cases that are open right now. We have uh, 31 cases whose investigations have gone past the 270 day uh, time period. Again, that's not the 3304 limit, but it's just the amount of time that these cases have uh, taken so far for their investigations. And of those 31 cases, 20 of the cases are told cases, meaning there are uh, suspensions on the statute of limitations for criminal or civil cases. There are currently still eight cases that are pending with the commission itself and 87 cases that are pending decisions with the department and the chief. Uh, in terms of the weekly trends, uh, a lot of this stuff has already been in the consent calendar. I won't go over the, that information. It's all available online. In terms of the monthly trends, however, uh, I'm saying monthly, but it really is five weeks, just for clarification. Uh, we've received uh, 66 cases, uh, and of those 63 were SFPD. Three of the cases uh, were sheriff's cases. I'm going to focus on the SFPD cases. 20% uh, of those cases over the past five weeks have been, and that's the top percentage, have been on uh, allegations of conduct unbecoming of an officer, meaning the officer behaved or spoke inappropriately as determined by the public or individual that are making the complaint. Uh, there's been a total of 128 complaints, 128 allegations from those uh, cases and complaints that have come in. Uh, for the full breakdown of the full 100%, that information is available on the website. In terms of the precincts and districts uh, that have come in, uh, the district that had the most complaints uh, over these past few weeks uh, has been Central District uh, that had 11 complaints that came from that district. The top three incidents from that district has been, number one, uh, allegations of an officer using excessive force, Number two, uh, an officer pointing firearms and or weapons at a person. And then number three, uh, an officer making inappropriate comments. Again, these are allegations. The full breakdown from every district, including the number of cases and the top allegations that have been made, are available online and on the website. In terms of outreach, uh, Richmond Station DPA participated in their November station meeting, answering questions and participating in that meeting. Uh, this Thursday, uh, DPA will be participating in the fireside chat 
at Manny's. That's a community-focused meeting learning space here in San Francisco. Uh, so that's going to feature our outreach uh, and communications coordinator, Carolyn Weisinger, who is here in the courtroom today, who is moderating a conversation with our policy director, Janelle Kaywood, also here in the, court, in the hearing room today, as well as our director of recruitment, Tanetta Thompson. Uh, the focus of the conversation will be centered around DPA 101, uh, which, in an overview, explains the functioning of our department for uh, the public. Uh, the, this event also, obviously, is open to the public. In terms of the audit division, I have a couple of updates <coughs> for everyone. On December 21st, uh, DPA issued its full audit report on SFPD's handling of officer misconduct. Uh, that report and audit includes details of SFPD's ability to ensure that misconduct and investigations are completed on time, as well as SFPD's handling of allegations of officer bias. So those details are in there. The report is publicly available on the website. It's scheduled for a presentation with this police commission on February 21st, so we'll have more details then. In December, DPA initiated a new audit of SFP, SFPD's stop data. Um, the objective of this audit is to determine the effectiveness of SFPD's processes for ensuring accurate and complete stop data as required by the state. Uh, and as well, uh, the audit is currently in the planning space, so I'll keep you updated on that. Uh, thirdly, DPA and the controller uh, the controller's office, we just swore it, well, we just nominated uh, the new controller today. Uh, we are following up with SFPD on the status of the open recommendations. Uh, these are the re recommendations that were made in October of 2020 on the first audit, the use of force audit. I failed to mention the award-winning use of force audit, just make sure we didn't miss that. Uh, so seven of the report's 37 recommendations are still open at the time. Uh, at this time. Uh, we have a number of cases uh, in closed session this evening. There are four uh, cases that uh, are involved DPA uh, present in the courtroom today uh, in case there are issues as one came up earlier this evening. Uh, senior investigator Steve Ball. Uh, also in the audience today is Natalie Garcia. Natalie Garcia is our Julius Terman Fellow who is here uh, and in the audience, thank you for being here, as well as Kyle Pingasro. He is one of our investigative fellows. Uh, Kyle comes to us with a number of years of military experience, which has been extremely helpful uh, for his assistance with the work that we're doing. And they are here in the courtroom today, as well as um, our chief of staff, Sarah Hawkins, I think that's all that's here so far, unless I'm missing people. Uh, if folks have uh, information or need to get in contact with DPA, they can contact us at the website, sfgov.org forward slash DPA. Uh, you can also contact us directly on the phone, 415-241-7711 is that phone number. I'll reserve my comments for the agenda items until they come up and we address them individually at the corresponding times. That concludes my report for the evening. Thank you, Judge. Congratulations to your team. I didn't 
quite. Can you have them stand so that we can see them? Yeah. Hi. That's welcome. Natalie and Kyle. All right. Welcome. Hopefully he won't make you come every Wednesday, but. Every Wednesday for the full time. Oh, great. Yes. They're never going to stay. <laughs> I know. All right. All right. No, no one's on the queue. Sergeant, can I? Have? Oh, oh, okay. A little slow on the trigger finger there. President Cindy Elias. Director Henderson, I have a question there. Um, looking at your DPA uh, received case, 66 of them was with uh, SFPD, and you have three with the SF Sheriff Office? Yes. So it comes into part of our report as well. Uh, or is this, this that you want to just factually just report it in? Well, I, I try to focus on just the police stuff for this, but uh, as you're aware, for the past few years, DPA has also been responsible for a lot of the sheriff works as well. Right. One of the recent updates has been that we've brought in an inspector general finally uh, to be managing a lot of that work, but we're still transitioning uh, how that work goes. So we still have the recording. A lot of these records, specifically in case folks have questions about the sheriff's office oversight stuff, right. is going to be funneled to, as it has been, to there's a separate commission, the sheriff's commission. Uh, and so that information is there. It was included. Uh, at some point, someone had asked me to share some of that data, and it's okay. nothing for me to include it in the records. Uh, for folks that are interested in tracking that work in terms of what DPA has been doing and has done, it's all available on the website. It's in these reports, but I try to just focus on the police things. But because the numbers are sometimes included, I do a full breakdown so there's no ambiguity about where the work is going, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and then the, uh, I guess the division of the fundings, so how much time do you spend on one side? Completely separate. Yeah. Okay. All right. They're completely separate, and to the degree the work is not or was not separated. So if it involves, <coughs> excuse me, staff from DPA, that both that time and that work is billed to the other department. So there's a whole separation. It's a whole funding budget issue to make sure that yeah. there's no overlap in terms of services, so that. The civilian oversight work that is associated and affiliated with the police department isn't diminished because of the obligations that are going on with the sheriff's department. Yeah, I think uh, we talked about this, what, three years ago. Hey, yeah. thank you. Thank you very much there, Director sure. Anderson. Thank you. Sergeant. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 5, DPA Director's Report, please approach the podium. And there's no public comment. Next item. Line item six, commission reports, discussion and possible action. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and schedule of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Seeing no one on the queue. Um, for members of the public, I'd like to make public comment regarding oh, item. Sorry, six. sorry. Okay, oh. Commissioner Yan, yes. Uh, thank you. Sorry about that. I should give an update regarding our social media, uh, the investigative social media uh, DGO draft uh, is going to be uh, extended. The timeline is going to be extended a couple of weeks to the end of the month, as uh, they've 
been obtaining a lot of feedback from different groups and it's been uh, a rigorous process, I think, <laughs> to say the least. I do also want to mention, though, that uh, I did ask, um, I believe is Asha Steves, uh, for I know that she was away during the break, uh, but we had separated the personnel social media uh, DGO from the investigative social media DGO, but there is a request to have an internal working group um, because there are still questions and some developments that we want to introduce into the social media for personnel uses. Um, so I wanted to give that update and um, I hope we can get that group, uh, work group, internal work group started um, as soon as possible. In addition to that, I do just want to um, commend the department, the chief, uh, Commissioner Benedicto on uh, putting together a really strong draft for our juvenile DGO 7.01. Um, some of the highlights that I really want to make sure that the community is aware of, um, there is, there, I think it's, it's a, a great development that we will be including some language around not um, ensuring that young people, when there is the ability to detain or arrest without necessarily having a handcuff individuals, that officers will have that discretion, which I think is a major development in our policy. Um, there will also be uh, an opportunity, I think, already in the language to, uh, that leaves the door open for us to continue to develop our uh, pre-booking uh, diversion program, which is still in the development phases. Um, I had a good meeting with the chief in December, and we are moving forward with identifying um, the program design and partners for restorative justice uh, pre-booking diversion program for our city. Uh, the Juvenile Probation Commission did uh, pass a resolution endorsing a pre-booking program in the city. They are the entity that has the expertise with juveniles and young offenders or potential um, offenders or potential victims, and uh, they are definitely full force on board with us developing this program. So thank you, Chief, for your leadership on that, and I'm glad that we have cleared some hurdles there. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, President Elias. Um, just a couple of quick uh, updates uh, for me. The, there were a couple of items that I had asked uh, to be agendized that um, because of the uh, large number of agenda items we have early this year, I'm gonna be meeting with the department uh, instead on these items and I can provide updates in my reports and they can be agendized later in the year uh, if they still need to. And so one of those is what uh, Commissioner Yanya has just mentioned, which is an update on the final status of Department General Order 7.01 on juveniles. I believe since I've made that request, we've seen it get posted, so it should be agendized for final passage soon, but I'll be meeting with the department to get that update and we'll provide that to the commission um, once I have it. And the second is um, a few months ago, there was a uh, article in the Chronicle regarding um, the lack of coordination with SFMTA on stolen car identification and ticketing of that. Um, I'd ask for that to be agendized and also in response to a request from the department, I'll be meeting with the department, including the traffic division on that instead and we'll provide an update um, once I have that as well. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Benedicto. I think we're gonna agendize that for February. Commissioner Yee. 
Thank you again, uh, President Cindy Elias. I uh, just want to report out on the December 6th award ceremony at um, for all the, uh, 44, I, I believe it was 44 members that were uh, awarded um, a certificate of, uh, I guess, Medal of Honors. So uh, I want to thank uh, the chief and then the staff, uh, commission staff putting forward uh, our members that um, I guess long overdue working with uh, Commissioner Burns and great to see uh, President Cindy Elias and um, Vice President uh, Carter Overstone, uh, Kevin Benedicto and I guess uh, Jim Burns and congratulations to all the recipients. Thank you, yes, uh, that's very important. We wanna congratulate um, the officers. Also a huge thank you to the commission staff who put that ceremony together. It was actually very nice and lovely. In very long overdue. I think it was the first one in person in a long time. Um, so uh, it was a good turnout, and I thought it was a very nice um, ceremony. All right, Sergeant. For members of the public, I'd like to make public comment regarding line item six, commission reports. Please approach the podium. There is no public comment. Line item seven, presentation on the SFPD's pursuit policy and associated data, data at the request of the commission. Discussion. Hello, welcome. Good evening. So, President Elias, good evening. Oh, good evening, uh, members of the commission. Uh, Director Henderson and Chief Scott. Uh, I'm Lieutenant Obot. I am currently at the Special Investigations Division, but uh, when we were asked to do this presentation, I was the Director of the Police Academy, uh, and as such, I was in charge and, of managing the Emergency Vehicle Operations Course and the staff there uh, who teach our driving training. Uh, with me today is uh, Captain Sean Perdomo, uh, Training Division. He's the captain in charge of the Training Division, and I worked for him in my capacity there. Uh, I'm here today to talk to you about the training portion of what we do and how our pursuit policy and uh, the training therein. So the current uh, status of our policy or the status of our current policy is it was last updated in 2013 as you can see there uh, and before that uh, it was updated in 2003. Um, when changes are made to the law uh, we update our policy accordingly and um, the last uh, substantive changes to um, depart or, sorry, state uh, laws were in 2007, 2005, and 2006. And uh, those laws um, fashioned what our policy was and is. Um, I can say uh, that currently um, when changes are made to the policy and to the laws, uh, POST, which is the Peace Officer Standard and Training in Sacramento, sends out updates to the training and testing specifications, and uh, these are things that are adopted at the academy, and we fold those into our training to, to maintain and stay current. Um, there's a typo, it says currently the policy is not under annual commission to be approved, and that was in 2023. Um, as of 2024, it is on the agenda to be reviewed and have the policy reviewed and updated, so. Um, and as I said, any major law changes that do come up, we would fold those into a department notice and, and we could rapidly and quickly change the policy. Um, moving on to what uh, the, our policy allows, um, when pursuits can and can, cannot be initiated, our policy allows um, pursuits, and this is separate from code three and emergency response writing, but pursuits only in cases of violent felonies or cases that um, the balance of uh, the public safety is at risk. Um, 
things like uh, violent felonies would be murder, mayhem, um, sexual assaults, lewd acts on child, children, robbery, arson. Those type of violent felonies are times when we can pursue. Um, the various intervention tactics that we use, um, we have um, pursuit prevention devices, uh, used to be called spike strips, um, but um, pursuit prevention devices that are available to us. Uh, and keep in mind that uh, pursuits are normally following uh, operations where you're trying to follow the suspect until they pull over or jump out of the car and the officers can safely take them into custody. Um, the role of the supervisor uh, during any pursuit the, um, that the officers initiate, there's a pursuit supervisor and that's a sergeant uh, and he, he stays in contact over the radio with the officers in that pursuit and makes sure they give all the required information, weather, speed, traffic conditions, the reason for the pursuit is a big one and that has to come out first because the supervisor weighs the balance of whether or not this pursuit should continue. And if uh, the pursuit should not continue, then the supervisor has the ability to terminate the pursuit and order the officers to stop chasing. Uh, reporting requirements, um, sorry, responsibilities of following and pursuit officers. So um, they're only allowed to have two, two officers, two cars in a pursuit, um, the lead, off, lead vehicle and a second vehicle. However, if um, in the supervisor's opinion, they need a third car, that can be authorized on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, reporting requirements, after a pursuit, um, the department, the officers, and the supervisor are required to submit a, a report to CHP, and that's a CHP 187 form, and that's a pursuit notification form that's um, sent to our EVOC unit and then um, uploaded to the CHP state um, website. Um, as far as command level notifications, uh, typically vehicle chases do go out on a command staff notification. Um, especially if there's an, you know, an arrest made or something like that. But um, in the shorter pursuits that don't involve any, any activity like that would not typically be reported. Um, as far as annual training, um, every year um, the stage training coordinators from various units are required to um, provide uh, in-service training and um, in that, that goes over um, reviewing the policy, uh, the department general order and any associated uh, department notices with the members of their unit and have the officers sign an attestation that they understand and have received the training. And then there's also a written test that's done on our Power DMS online, um, uh, online uh, department notice management system. So next slide, please. Oh, you'll have to. Um, so for driver training, um, as I wrote here that the San Francisco Police Department does have a robust emergency response and pursuit driving training, driver's training program, and it has many layers. Uh, the Learning Domain 19 is our basic academy training, and that consists of 120 hours of uh, be both behind the wheel and in class training for the recruit officers who go through the academy, typically coming in their 20 to 25th week, depending on scheduling. So they've been in the academy for 20 or so weeks, and then they get this pursuit training and uh, driver's training. Um, the annual recertification, which I spoke about earlier, is conducted at the station level or unit level with the uh, unit training coordinators. And then um, every year uh, we have biennial training, uh, and this is to comply with POST. Um, every officer has to go through a perishable skills program. Uh, in that, they're unplugged from the street, and they go out to the EVOC unit for classroom training and behind-the-wheel training. And this training is required by POST, and it's uh, required to be a four-hour training block. Uh, and then all officers go through that on a two, every two-year cycle. Um, so I talked a little bit about the uh, Learning Domain 19, um, and this is just a, a breakout of what we do. Uh, Sergeant Thomas um, 
is in charge of that unit, and he has three officers working for him. Um, for the recruits, it's 120 hours, and that's an increase uh, from last year. Uh, last year we only did um, 80 hours, but we increased it by 40 hours because we were experiencing a lot of failures. There were a lot of um, recruits who were coming to us who had little or no driver's training or driving experience. Um, to, be, to get into the police department, all you need is a driver's license. But if you've had no driver training, and then 40 or 60 hours into it, we're asking you to drive 65 miles an hour and follow a car, it was challenging. And uh, a lot of recruits weren't, not a lot, but some of the recruits were not up to it. So we were experiencing failures, which was challenging for us. And at the time, we were trying to, trying to bring in more officers to have them fail driver's training when they've been through 20, 20 weeks of training, excuse me. It was challenging. So we added some more time, and it's been effective. Um, the last class that I was involved with, I think we had one failure, and that was due to a collision. They just class crashed on the course. But um, the training is working, and we are able to retain more recruits um, through the EVOC program. Uh, some of the components um, that the recruits go through are a collision avoidance course uh, called the CAC, the Precision Maneuver Course, and then a Code 3 Day and, and Night and Pursuit. And those are the high-speed ones where if you have not been driving a car or if you just got your driver's license so that you could take the test to become a police officer, you're going to struggle there because it's sometimes nighttime. We're having you pursue an instructor, and it can be challenging. So. Um, I talked a little bit about the annual recertification, um, and again, it's uh, station training corners, but it's also unit training coordinators as well. Every unit in the department has a training coordinator. Um, the training, this department training manager um, condu uh, conducts training with them to make sure that they're aware of how um, the, trainings they need, the trainings they need to push out and train their people and the documentation that needs to come back to him, and that's Robert Ashpole at the Academy, and he does a great job. So uh, I talked a little bit about the, about the EVOC and the Perishable Skills Program. Again, I said a two-year um, cycle. We're about halfway through that cycle. It started in um, 2023. Um, so now it goes from 2023 to the end of 2024. And we're about halfway through training, which means that we're right on pace. Um, the officers uh, have two years to complete the, the training to maintain their accreditation or certification with POST. And we're on pace to complete that easily by the end of 2024. And then lastly, I have uh, some statistics here that are from uh, uh, CHP, and these go over the um, collisions and uh, pursuits that we've had. Um, as you can see, there's um, uh, between 25 and 30 is normal. In uh, 2021, we had uh, 39, so that was a little bit more than normal. And I, I, um, this data comes to me from post, and I don't have any analysis of this data. Uh, these are raw numbers. Um, but uh, one thing you will note is that the collisions and fatalities are in the ones and zeros. So while we do have upwards of 20 to 25 or 39 pursuits, uh, collisions and fatalities, you know, fatalities are down in zero in one column, and then collisions are in the six to nine range, typically, over year to year. Uh, one thing I did note in uh, preparing for this is that uh, there was a CHP report um, in 2022, and it's a CHP report based on Senate Bill 719 that talks about apprehension rates and something that they found. And the statistic that stuck out to me was uh, they found an increase, a 68.8% increase uh, that the 
pursuits were more likely to result in the apprehension of a suspect uh, when they were supported by air units, be that um, unmanned aerial vehicles or manned aerial vehicles. But uh, that was something that was a big number to me uh, because other than that, um, that, like our numbers seem year to year pretty, pretty consistent. So um, that's all I have. Thank you for your presentation. When you you just said the the 68.8% uh, pursuits result in capture with aerial support, are you talking about like the choppers? Either, um, so the report didn't break out whether it was unmanned aerial vehicles or manned, be it helicopters or uh, CHP has fixed wing aircraft. Um, other agencies have unmanned aerial vehicles being, you know, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, so. And then am I understanding right that you, you said there were 39, but you were talking about 2021 suits, right? That's right. Okay, so, and then in 2022, there were only 26 pursuits, and in 23, there were only nine. That's right. right? Well, and um, at the time of this report, uh, only nine had been reported. Uh, we were asked to do this, I think, in July or so, and as you all know, it got postponed uh, several months uh, until now. So uh, in that time, there, there potentially probably could have been more. Okay, and this is just for San Francisco? That's right. Okay. Um, and then I, one thing I noticed in your presentation, you have the nice new fancy uh, SFPD SUV vehicle in the presentation. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, is when you're training these officers, are, is that the vehicle you're using for, or you giving to them to use while they're doing these trainings? It is. They use, uh, they use the police um, utility vehicle just like we use on the street. Uh, the only difference, I think, is it doesn't, it doesn't have a cage. But other than that, that's the vehicle. Because I, the thing that comes to mind is usually, and it comes, this discussion is really robust during budget season, is a lot of the officers complain about the outdated equipment, specifically the vehicles that they have and that they use to patrol, and the vehicles are outdated, the equipment's not working, they aren't, you know, they're not um, top of the line or reliable. Sure. So I wonder how that plays into the vehicle pursuit, um, because you're the officers are in equipment that isn't really, I think, designed, if you will, for vehicle pursuits. So I, I'm wondering how that sort of um, reconciles itself. If we're, if, you know, they're, they're being trained in an SUV that's equipped and has more bells and whistles than their actual patrol car that's sort of, and they tell us that they're falling apart, how does that work? Um, well, I would say that the vehicles haven't been out there and been in the vehicles they use there pretty comparable to the vehicles that we use out in the field. Um, yes, I mean, we could all use new equipment, and in, in a perfect world, we'd be on rotation where we had the budget to, I'm sure, I don't want to speak out of turn, but uh, replace vehicles every four or five years, but I think that's just not the reality. So uh, the, I tried when I was there to make sure that um, Fleet kind of always gave us a couple cars because we do have recruits who crash and demolish cars, and it's part of training. And, um, then that's one vehicle out of rotation for the for the training division to use in this in this in this circumstance. But uh, from my eye, uh, uh, the vehicles that they use at training are the same vehicles uh, minus the cage that they're going to use when they go out into the field. And I think it has to be. It has to be very right. close. Okay. Okay. Commissioner Yee. Oh. I have a question uh, regarding uh, autonomous cars that's driving out there. Um, I've seen them sometimes double park and stuff like that. I guess how would you, who would you contact to say, you know, your, the officers says, uh, how do you get the cars to move out? Because I've seen them park in uh, scoot, 
school zones where kids are getting in and out. So is there a way for the department to contact, um, I guess, the, either Waymo or Cruise, you know, those, those companies that say, um, is there a way to contact that vehicle to say to move or um, if there's a suspect that just rented a Waymo and got in there and how do you stop it? You know, just some thoughts on what you think uh, going forward in the future because it looks like that's uh, going to be in the, in, you know, some of the things we may run into in the police department. Just want to see what your thoughts are. Understood. Um, I think that uh, on the enforcement level, that's going to be on the field operations side uh, for the training division. Um, we, we very much stick to what post mandates that we train the recruits. Um, from having been out on the street, I know that um, most officers have uh, been made aware that there's a Waymo uh, police services number that you can call. Um, during APEC, I, I remember being in a scene and there was one stopped in the middle of the road and officers were able to get, get a hold of somebody from Waymo and move it out, have it moved out of the way. Um, but I think uh, that might be a question better aimed at maybe the traffic company or the enforcement side, to be honest, uh, at the training division, and especially for recruit training like I was doing, uh, we focus on training the recruits and getting them uh, through the academy so that uh, the chief can pin the star on them. Just some uh, food for dots. Understood. Thank you. Uh, thank you, President Elias. Thank you, Lieutenant, for the presentation. Um, would you mind putting up that last slide, the bar graph? I think it was slide seven. That one? Yes, thank you. It, do we have data going back before 2018, by the way, just out of curiosity? You said this came from post. Um, yeah, no, it came from CHP. came from CHP. Um, I requested the data, and I... I Asked for five years, and that's what they gave me. Uh, I, I believe if we asked for more data going back than we could, but I thought, uh, you know, we had the in-between here is a pandemic and everything, so I thought a five years was a good sample size to, to use. No, that's great. I would love if we could get uh, more data specifically going all the way back pre-2013 would be of interest, especially. Okay. Um, but, right. but I think this is perfect for today's purposes. Um, the blue, this is, this is a tough one to read, there's a lot of bars, but the, the, the tall blue ones just showing the total number of chases, yes. do those include chases that were aborted because a supervisor terminated them? <clears throat> those would have to be included. If you the, engage in a pursuit uh, and, if, and if it's terminated, you still have to complete the, uh, the CHP pursuit form. Great. Okay, thanks. Um, and then I noticed, so, so you did kind of cover this at the end in terms of when we initially asked for this a, a while back and I got pushed back, but there were, it did strike me that there were, a, there's been a number of injuries, excuse me, injuries and fatalities in 2013 that wouldn't be captured here. So there's the recent chase in late December, that, 2023. I understand. Yeah, uh, uh, four injuries. The suspect crashed into a car with three occupants and then hit a pedestrian. That would not be included in this. No, and the 2023 data, um, when I requested the data, a lot of our data was backlogged. The supervisor had been working really understaffed, and so I got on him, and he has since caught up. So I think if we were to ask for that again or go back, make another request and say, give me back to from 2024 all the way to 2013, I think uh, there'd be a lot more data in the 2023 box. And do we know where the 2023 data was cut off, roughly which month, or we're just, we're not sure? He was backlogged most of the year, so I mean, probably April and May would be just a guess. 
Okay, because in May there was a crash uh, with four injuries and one death. Mm-hmm. That was a case where the suspect stole a, a city vehicle, so that wouldn't be included in this, I guess, because there was no deaths on that. Yeah, and, no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then just want to – there's a lot of bars and sub-bars here, so I just want to summarize. Over this time period, as I, see, as I count it, there was 150 chases, 57 total collisions, 36 injuries. <clears throat> So, so that means that 38% of chases result in a collision, and roughly one in four chases results in an injury. Is that, am I roughly right there? I haven't done the math. I would have to rely on your data if that's what, if that's what you've calculated. And does that sound, does that, how, how does that number strike you, one in four chases resulting in an injury? Does, does that strike you as a high number, roughly what you would expect, or low? I, yeah, I don't have the... Uh, I, Compared to other agencies, compared to state agencies, I don't. I wouldn't be able to make a uh, an analysis of that. Okay. Um, great. Those are all my questions for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for your presentation. Thank you. Stick around. We may have. Yes, ma'am. So we're, I know we're about to begin the. DPA portion of the presentation. I just had a statement that I just wanted to make that a lot of the information that we're getting from this subject uh, in particular and this agenda item in particular, it may seem somewhat perfunctory, but uh, we've had, and this is the royal we, all of us, or everyone, uh, has directives from the city attorney's office about the present this presentation. Uh, and the subject matter specifically to avoid any misuse of city resources for political purposes. So it's, we're purposefully not addressing commentary on any pending legislative or ballot initiatives, and we're only presenting the results of our research. Again, as a reminder, this presentation was scheduled from last July, I think it was on the agenda for September, uh, and then it got moved to now, so it's still here, but I just wanted to raise the issue or address it uh, in terms of anyone sensing a difference in terms of what gets presented or how it's being presented on this topic in particular as an agenda item. Thank you, Director Henderson. I would ask my fellow colleagues um, that uh, given uh, Director Henderson's um, caveat, uh, they have been advised by the city attorney that they are not allowed to opine as to current ballot measures and or, um, as you indicated, legislative um, initiatives, and that uh, our questions um, to the presenters um, be such that they're focused on the facts and research that they're about to present and not on any um, thing political. And if they are, then we are going to ask that um, they not be, or they're actually refrained um, and have been advised by the city attorney not to answer our questions. So I would ask my colleagues to refrain from um, soliciting those type of opinions. Good evening, I'm Janelle Kaywood. I am the policy director at the Department of Police Accountability. Greetings, commissioners, President Elias, welcome back. Uh, director Henderson, Chief Scott, and members of the public. Um, I'm gonna try to keep this under 10 minutes, but it's a lot of material, so if I go over a minute or two, I request leave from the commission to do that. Um, I was asked back in July to do a national survey of best practices regarding vehicle pursuits, 
uh, with an eye towards best practices in case the commission uh, expressed an interest in updating DGO 5.05. So this is the result of my national best practices research. And I'd like to thank the DPA interns who are incredibly helpful gathering this up. Okay, uh, to start, it's undisputed that vehicle pursuits are dangerous for pursuing officers, bystanders, and the person fleeing. Uh, we looked at the research, uh, next slide please. The National Highway Administration in 2020 uh, reported that 532 people died as a result of police vehicle pursuits, including three officers. In 2015, USA Today did a study uh, looking at data from 1979 through 2013. Uh, more than 5,000 bystanders were killed in police pursuits, including, and tens of thousands of more were injured, including officers. So death asso deaths associated with the chase till the wheels fall off model of the 80s and 90s uh, was a motivator to revise policies nationwide. Next slide, please. I'm sorry, I, I loaded the wrong PowerPoint. Can I just proceed based on my um, wall report? Okay. Sorry, everyone. Fine, happens to all of us. I have the PDF. Oh, oh okay. Sorry, everyone. The public would not have it. What's that thing called? Yeah, the projector. <laughs> I, I loaded my last Sparks report. I apologize, everyone. I'm a little. Again, that happens to all. Not going to show if we. Hmm? Oh, perfect. Sergeant Youngblood to the rescue, as always. <laughs> More times than one. Thank you, Sergeant. Okay. Um, so sli slide number two: national data. Okay, slide number three. So there's also been, this commission's always been concerned in the city with race disparities. So in 2020, um, activists, there are community concerns uh, regarding race disparities in vehicle pursuits. Uh, in particular, in 2020, there were activists in Washington, D.C., uh, from communities of color who raised concerns to the media that people of color are more likely to be the subject of dangerous vehicle pursuits. And given the historical racial tensions between the police and communities of color, uh, the concern is that people of color in a given interaction are gonna flee the police uh, and often leading to dangerous pursuits for minor offenses. Next slide. Okay, one thing that our research revealed that pretty consistently, all of, most of the policies contain uh, a balancing test that is used nationwide that the majority of the policies contain a mandate that officers must balance the need of immediate capture, including taking into consideration the seriousness of the offense against the inherent risks and pursuits to the pursuing officers, innocent motors, and others. And in California, that's uh, codified in the vehicle code session, sec in the California vehicle code. Uh, in recent years, major cities with dense populations shifted towards more restrictive policies for uh, limiting pursuits for violent felonies uh, or when there's some other imminent threat to life. Okay. 
going to just kind of go through a chronology of like major cities. In 2013, the Boston Police Department uh, created a policy that stated that city congestion precludes pursuit driving in a safe manner. No pursuits are allowed unless the occupants of the vehicle are known to be wanted for violent or life-threatening felonies or if the vehicle is being operated in an erratic or dangerous manner. And that's the same year that uh, SFPD updated their policy. It's very similar to Boston. Vehicle pursuits are authorized if a fleeing person is suspected of a violent felony or when there's a reasonable belief that the person needs to be immediately apprehended because of the risk to public safety. Uh, next slide. Uh, moving on to 2015, New Orleans Police Department updated their policy. Uh, again, very limited. Officers may only pursue if they have reasonable suspicion that the fleeing person has committed a violent crime and that the person's escape would pose an imminent danger of death or serious bodily injury to the officer or another person. Next slide. In 2016, F Philadelphia Police Department updated their policy, pursuits are allowed if necessary to prevent the death or serious bodily injury of another person, or if the pursuit's necessary to pre prevent the escape and the officer has probable cause to believe that the person being pursued possesses a deadly weapon other than the vehicle itself. 2017, Detroit Police Department. After a string of fatalities from vehicle pursuits, Detroit PD updated its policy to limit pursuits to situations where there's probable cause to believe the suspect committed a violent felony. Uh, in 2019, uh, Baltimore Police Department, uh, they, Baltimore updated its vehicle pursuit policy to limit pursuits for when there's probable cause that a violent felony has occurred. Chicago's slightly different. They last updated their, the police department last updated their policy in 2020. Uh, their policy bans pursuits for theft-related offenses, including auto thefts, and bans pursuits for traffic offenses, but uh, except for DUIs. Uh, pursuits for other misdemeanors and felonies are allowed subject to the balancing test. Uh, Los Angeles Police Department. I'm not sure of their last update. They don't have as much online as other departments. But what I uncovered is that they currently employ a balancing test, public safety versus the need to apprehend. Uh, plus, there are no pursuits allowed for infractions, misdemeanor evading, or reckless driving in response to an enforcement action. Uh, this is a considerably broader policy than we would see in more dense cities. Uh, pursuits for misdemeanors and felonies are allowed, but they, interestingly, they first have to determine the availability of an air unit, and their policy states that whenever possible, air units must assume responsibility for pursuits. Uh, some interesting data, on more data on LAPD. Uh, the Board of Commissioners in LA recently requested pursuit analysis for the past few years. The chief of police produced a report dated April 19th, 2023, that highlights how LAPD pursuits and related collisions have increased exponentially since 2018. That report said that from 2018 to 2023, 25% of LAPD vehicle pursuits ended in collisions and the majority of the injuries suffered were by third-party victims. Uh, New York Police Department, their vehicle Pursuit policy is not available to the public. I did request it from the department. I checked in with their civilian oversight, civilian oversight board. I couldn't get it. Um, my report is based on what I've 
observed in the media, and I have compiled these articles so if the commission's interested, I can provide any of the sources that I've cited here today. I, I have made a binder that's available to anyone. Um, NYPD made headlines in 2023 because of its lenient pattern of engaging in vehicle pursuits. Apparently, NYPD had a new chief of patrol who was largely credited for a 600% increase in pursuits in 2023. The media reported that he created an unofficial policy change within NYPD because the official policy stated that pursuit should only be used as a last resort. Um, uh, the media has also reported that there's been an uptick in fatalities due to the increased number of pursuits. And currently, the media, the media also reported that all of NYPD's vehicle collisions or crashes are under review by the state attorney general. Okay. Uh, so I just want to summarize. I reviewed 20, DPA reviewed 25 vehicle pursuit policies from larger regions throughout the country. 18 of the 25 have restricted policies like San Francisco, limiting pursuits to situations when the fleeing person has committed a serious, violent, or forcible felony and there's an imminent threat to life. Um, uh, I, we created a table summarizing all the policies that we hope the commission was able to review. Chicago banned pursuits for all theft offenses and traffic, traffic offenses except for drunk driving. New York didn't post their policy, but there's been some media reports that there's been an uptick in pursuits and an uptick in fatalities that have been somewhat controversial. Four departments from less congested re regions have broader policies, LAPD, San Diego, Indiana, Houston, and Austin. Okay, um, so just to give the commission data from CHP, I don't wanna repeat anything the good lieutenant just said, but there's been a total of 12,513 pursuits in 2021, 20.1 resulted in crashes, 35.3 were injury crashes, 1.7 were fatal crashes. Uh, I guess the issue, there were 44 fatal crashes which resulted in 52 deaths. I couldn't access the 22 state data. Um, I guess the issue that the commission and the city should look into is how SFPD can improve outcomes for solving property crimes since pursuits are dangerous for our heavily populated city. And Lieutenant Obot just said this, but pursuits, I think it's important to look to the data. Pursuits involving air support reported an apprehension rate of 80.6% while pursuits not involving air support reported an apprehension rate of 48 0.1%, and this is the CHP data. Um, since SF doesn't have helicopters, presumably due to poor visibility and our unique uh, terrain, another option for the city to consider is drones. Next slide. Uh, the city may consider the use of drones for vehicle uh, chases and active incidents. Drones reduce, if not eliminate, the need per for pursuits and they are a form of de-escalation. Uh, Chula Vista Police Department currently has a lot of information about their drone policy uh, that was informative. Of course, civil liberties would have to be protected through the 19B process. Drone use for surveillance or investigations may re raise serious civil liberty concerns, but use during vehicle pursuits and active incidents may not, and we definitely need a robust citywide discussion on this topic. Um, Tire deflation devices are also also reduce the need for dangerous pursuits. Uh, the, the city, the, this commission's already done some good work around tire deflation devices. 
and we thank you for that. The police commission specifically authorized tire deflation devices for preemptive use on September 6th when it sent uh, the revised use of force policy to meet and confer with the POA and subsequently issued, issued a commission resolution on September 21st, 2023, really delineating that the city should be using uh, tire deflation devices. Uh, this new policy was adopted on November 1st, 2023. Uh, we also recommend updating DGO 5.05 to provide updated and specific guidance to officers on when and how they can use tire deflation devices during pursuits. 5.05 currently refers to outdated bureau orders. Next slide. Another option for this commission and the city to consider is vehicle location traffic tracking devices. Uh, these devices, such as GPS launchers, these devices for short-term use may eliminate or reduce the need for pursuits. Some academic or civil liberty experts have opined that the short-term use of vehicle tracking devices during pursuits would fall under the exigent circumstances exception to the GPS warrant requirement under U.S. v. Jones, so long as there's also probable cause to arrest. Of course, we would need to go through the 19B process to ensure civil liberties are protected and that these devices are um, safe and effective uh, for law enforcement uses. And of course, the city attorney would need to weigh in on the constitutional issues. And I'd just like to point out that the US Department of Justice came out with a best practices report right as I was writing this report in September of this year. Uh, they had some good information in there. That is sort of the definitive best practices, and I, incur I can provide it to the commission upon request. Thank you. That's all I have. Thank you for your presentation. I think it would be helpful to have the best practices. Um, so why don't you go ahead and submit that to the commission office, and we'll post that on the website. Um, the binder of sources? Oh, the DOJ. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I think that, you know, given all of the efforts that the DOJ has done with respect to the reform and giving us guidance and providing subject matter experts um, in this, the field of law enforcement, I think it would behoove us to have that report and to seek guidance from that. Of course. They do talk about how, a lot about how, the whole document is about how agencies reduce the risk inherent in vehicle pursuits, and they do discuss that one way to do it is through restrictive vehicle pursuit policies. So that's something that the city should look at and this commission. So thanks. Does DPA get a lot of, I, re, I recall some cases that had uh, that DPA had on the annual report, and I can't remember the year, where um, citizens had been complaining of, the, of driving and uh, um, reckless driving done by officers. What are the numbers in terms of the disciplinary cases? I'm not sure. I can we can look into that and get back to you. Okay. I know we get those cases all the time. Uh, we're but it oftentimes, and this is just anecdotal, it's not necessarily tied to a chase, or they don't know okay. that there's a chase. They just see. I'd have to look to give you something specific. I just know that, that every year there, there are allegations about behaviors just generally. I think I recall it in the context of plainclothes officers driving as well. Oh, okay. So okay. I was wondering if they were related to any of the pursuits, yeah. but thank you for the clarification. I'm going to turn over to Vice President Carter Overstone, but I do have a question for Lieutenant uh, Obot. 
Um, during this presentation, she, uh, Ms. Kaywood brought up the injury to third parties. And I noticed in your um, the graph that you had in yours, there were two questions I had, which is, do you have the numbers or data with respect to the injuries suffered by third party victims as a result of the pursuits um, for the years that you cite in your graph? And then my second question is, of the number of pursuits that are um, pursued on the year, what is the percentage or number of apprehensions? Meaning out of the 39 pursuits, how many um, suspects were apprehended or what, you know, what were the results of those numbers? And I'm gonna go ahead and give you, unless you have the data to answer that, but I wanna give you time um, while the other commissioners uh, ask Ms. Kaywood questions about hers. Vice President Carter Overstone. Uh, thank you, President Elias. Thank you, Director Kaywood, <clears throat> for the presentation. Um, just wanted to ask you if there was anything in policies from other jurisdictions that stood out to you that was particularly unique or innovative or different or just worth the commission's consideration. Um, no, I didn't see anything particular, particularly novel. Let me go back and I double check my notes and uh, if I see something that strikes my fancy, I'll definitely report it to the commission. Okay, thank you. Yeah, well, one thing that, that stood out to me was, well, I guess I'd be curious your take on how permissive or, or not our policy is compared to other jurisdictions. I, as I look at the table that you attach to your presentation that, that goes through several jurisdictions, several dozen jurisdictions, you know, it strikes me that for most of them, the standard is violent felony or something like that. You know, since Cincinnati's violent felony, you know, dozens of them are violent felony. I think the Florida jurisdictions are forcible felony. Our policy says you can chase for a violent felony, but it also says you can chase for any offense as long as there's kind of an imminent risk to public safety. Right. It's definitely not the most restrictive policies because there are some that actually require probable cause that a violent felony has occurred to pursue, which is much higher than ours. I would, it's towards, it's about average, I think, for the big city policies. It's nothing like, I think there's been some misinformation that it's like crazy restrictive and that just wasn't what I found in my research. Yeah, th thank you. That's helpful. Yeah, it's, it definitely struck me as more, more permissive, at least, than the median policy. Could I say but, one more thing? Uh, thinking in response to your previous question, there was some discussion, I think, in another policy and maybe the U.S. DOJ report about uh, vehicle pursuits where they're not high speed, high speed, and where they're just following the person. Um, those that was sort of an interesting concept, and um, the U.S. DOJ put forth some options that, you know, that policies need to give officers. If, if you can't chase, what can you do? And I think our policy could be clarified in that way. Like, can they pursue but just not do it in a high-speed manner? So there's definitely like things to work on. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Um, one thing I actually wanted to ask Chief about was the slide that you brought up on the GPS launcher and. This is actually something that officers also brought up in our uh, Kevin, our Commissioner Benedicto and my, uh, we had a closed door kind of town hall session where officers gave feedback to us on our 
pursuit policy, and this is something that came up with officers as well about interest in, I think it was Star Chase, um, you know, a device that you kind of attach or shoot on the fleeing vehicle that, that, that attaches and a GPS location. And so you can follow the vehicle and, and get it later not and obviate the need for a high-speed pursuit. Chief, I'm, I'm curious if you have a view on this technology and, and you know, maybe why our department doesn't currently use it. <clears throat> yeah, Star Chase is a technology that I, I am familiar with. We have done research on Star Chase, and um, my view is it could be helpful. I mean, I, I think it could be helpful. It's, uh, it's a technology that's fairly new. Um, and for the public, it basically propels a tracker into the vehicle that's being chased uh, from the police car, bumper or grill or where, where it's, 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 uh, it deploys from. So I think it could be helpful. It's not something that we have pursued in terms of actually doing the research to the point that we've asked for a budget request. I think it was about a year ago when it came to my attention about Star Chase. So we've had conversations about it, at least at the executive level, but we have not further the, the pursuit of this technology, not yet anyway. There's also the, excuse me, there's also GPS launchers. My understanding is that they're handheld, not coming from a vehicle, but like for plainclothes officers to use from a, a, their, from a standing position. So I think there's options. I know that there's like safety concerns that, that they need to be used effectively. And there has been some research on Star Chase. I could forward it to the chief for his consideration. Okay, great, thank you. Um, great, that's everything for me, thank you. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you so much um, for those presentations. Um, I'm trying to go through not, so would it be fair to say, Ms. K, would it, based on your review, um, our policy is not an outlier in either direction in terms of restrictiveness? Correct. Um, Do you think, after looking at the other jurisdictions, there's any significant thing missing from our policy that's present in some of the policies? Uh, just what I stated in my report, the policy refers to outdated bureau orders on how to employ tire deflation devices. I think that's the main thing. I definitely think it's you know 10 years old, and giving officers a list of options they can do when they can't pursue would be a good update, but there's nothing major or glaring, it seemed relatively consistent with best practices. Um, Chief, I know that um, the Vice President talked to you about uh, the GPS trackers. I want to talk a little bit about drones. I know there's been some discussion in the department about adding that as a tool. Uh, is there any update you can provide in that and how you think it can interact with our pursuit policy? Drones are um, the most effective either in a slow speed pursuit or post pursuit. Unfortunately, you know, our department, at least at this time, we don't have any overhead air support. So um, drone technology, at least the ones that I'm familiar with that are used in, in, in for, by police departments, they have limitations to speed. And usually it's post-pursuit when the perimeter or suspect stops or crashes or whatever. Um, it helps in that apprehension because you have that overhead view. So I think they they could be very protect, uh, uh, very effective. I have personally never used drones in that manner, so I don't have any personal experience. I've used airships or helicopters many many times, but it's the same concept. 
you're able to track suspects, you're able to set up perimeters, you're able to contain a lot quicker. So I think it could be a, a huge tool for this department that would have a positive impact on the outcomes of these pursuits and lessen a little bit of the pressure to, to go hands-on. Are there any specific plans in the works to present a proposal on that to either the Commission or the Board of Supervisors? Yes, we have actually uh, started working on developing a drone policy, and we actually started that a while ago. It got put on hold. We never got to the point to even present it to the Commission because it got put on hold, put on ice. But yes, that is something that our policy unit has been, been working on. And if I may I be heard just briefly? I, the drone for active incidents and for pursuits, I think we, we could conceivably work you know, a policy around like limiting it to those. Um, I think it'd be helpful to the police officers to have it. Um, but uh, our concern would be if they started using drones for uh, surveillance and investigations, we would have civil, the, I think the ACLU would have a lot to say about that. But if we could, if the parameters could be uh, active incidents and pursuits only, I think it's worth the city discussion. Perfect, yeah, that's very helpful. Uh, Director Kaywood, when looking at, at your research and also the, the DOJ best practices report, um, sort of uh, as a general conclusion, do you think that our policy is consistent with, with the best practices for pursuit policies? Yes. Okay. Um, Lieutenant Robot, can, can I get your response to that too from the perspective of the train division, if you think our, uh, that our current pursuit policy is consistent with best practices? Chief. Sorry, what was oh. that? Okay. Have you reviewed the DOJ best practices report? Okay. Chief, can I, same question. Yeah, I think our policy is consistent with uh, what Ms. Kaywood reported. And also, I know she talked a lot about the Los Angeles policy, which I'm very familiar with. More broad, uh, allows more latitude. But I think our policy is consistent with the, the, the trends of national law enforcement. And the, con the congestion of our city. I think that's the linchpin of what I saw. Thank you, that's all. Commissioner Yan, yes. Thank you, President um, Elias. Uh, quick question about in, on slide, oh, they're not numbered, but the one that indicated that 25% of LAPD vehicle pursuits ended in collisions and that the majority of those were suffered by third party victims. Uh, do you have an actual number of what that majority was? I can look in the report. I have the report I can forward you. Um, that was just a summary of it, but I don't remember. We're off the top of my head if they drilled down on that number. But I think it'd be great to obtain that okay. number if it's available. Um, and just looking at um, the presentation for our local numbers from 18 to 23, I think similar to uh, Vice President Carter Oberstone's uh, quick review, it sounds like we are pretty much in, in tune, unfortunately, with what the state outcomes are, right? About 25% of uh, our incidents in 23, it was more like 40% of the incidents uh, out of the 26 chases that ended up in some type of injury, 25% in 23, 20, so pretty constant numbers throughout the period with respect to our local uh, practices when engaging in pursuits, even with our somewhat uh, best practice policy in place. That was my assessment. Chief, um, 
Has there been a, a formal request uh, to the city attorney's office uh, about the impacts of the potential use of GPS trackers or drones in our city yet? About the impacts? About the legal uh, concerns, questions, or, and, and practical impacts of using that technology in our department. In, not that I know of. We don't have a formal, we don't have an opinion or advice from the city attorney at this point on that. If you're talking about private, privacy concerns and that Correct. type of thing, no. Uh, and uh, I would love for the city attorney's office to, as soon as possible, give us that opinion, just as the uh, city's considering uh, and as our department is considering this technology, obviously it makes sense to, to obtain as much uh, legal clarity about the use of this technology in our city um, as we're having this conversation and discussion. What is your, um, what is your opinion about the utilization of those as a de-escalation de technique? Uh, of oh, GPS uh, star launchers or the drone um, the drones. So the, the concept and the impact of technology or any type of tool of that nature is, of course, to minimize the, minimize the likelihood of a pursuit or if a pursuit occurs to try to stop it from occurring. So for instance, if you have a helicopter, uh, Ms. Kaywood mentioned LAPD's policy. Uh, at least when I was there, the policy was to go in tracking mode as quickly as you can. So the the unit chasing the car would pull back and let the helicopter do what they do. Um, the whole idea is to slow people down, prevent the third-party crashes and all that. So any technology that serves to give a police department, particularly this police department, to do that is a good thing because we don't have anything. So the result is, you know, our officers, when they at the termination of pursuit, we're, we're in foot pursuit, you know, we do perimeters and all that, but we don't have the use of that type of technology. So I think it forces us to be a lot more aggressive. So yeah, I think it is always a good thing when you have a tool or a piece of technology that gives you the ability to pull back from a pursuit or stop a pursuit from happening. I mean, you can put a helicopter or a drone up, depending on the speed with the drone, and follow until the car runs out of gas or until they stop and do what they do and then you have a location or uh, it, it's just usually it's a better outcome. Great. Thank you. That's, those are my questions. Chief, one quick question. Are you, I know budget uh, season's coming up and the budget proposal from the department's coming up. Are you going to request or allocate, request an allocation for um, any of this equipment in your budget? We are going through that process right now, uh, Commissioner, so um, I'll have to follow up with you on that because okay. we, ha we have to prioritize. And, you well, know, I mean, you, you we've, we've haven't been, been asking before, so. Well, and, yeah, and we, well not, not for drones. We, we weren't for, at that point, but we, right. I'll, I'll have to follow up with you. I know we do a presentation to the commission in the very near future on our budget request. So. Closed mouths don't get fed, right? So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right, Commissioner Yee. Thank you very much there, President Cindy Elias. I just uh, just want to ask the chief, um, do you know when the police department started using the drones out there? I think, yeah. Uh, we have not. I mean, police departments across the country and other jurisdictions have been using them probably for, yeah. I don't know, 10 years or so. 
Yeah, I think uh, Chula Vista uh, Police Department, 2018. And do you know how many, I guess, Janelle, uh, hey, what, how many uh, police department are using drones? I don't. Uh, the, you know, Lieutenant Obot and, uh, and I discussed it, and he turned me on to the Chula Vista policy. I couldn't find a, a lot of policies on it. Um, he, he might know better than I do, yeah. but it's a, it's a relatively new technology, <clears throat> and we're in the center of, you know, innovation. So I think we can... I've looked at new, new technologies yeah. and keep our department up to date. Yeah, maybe we should be in the lead. I, I think there's over, uh, just checking on the website, there's 1,400 uh, police departments throughout the country that are using drones. So, mm. again, there's a lot of police departments. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, and we do think it should be go through the 19B process and make sure civil liberties are protected. Um, but, yeah, that's all I have. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Lieutenant Obot. Answers to the two questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Kaywood. I didn't request that data. That was not um, any of the data that was um, asked of me when I put this together, but I did look at statewide. Uh -huh. um, CHP reported that 52.5% of uh, vehicle pursuits result in apprehension. Okay. So, and that was from the um, CHP report to the legislature, but I don't have SFPD numbers on how many of our pursuits resulted in apprehension. But we have the data, right? I would have, I don't, I don't, we don't retain that data here. All our numbers get shipped off to the, to the state, and that's one thing with our new computer system that we're talking about rolling out in a, in a year and a half is, uh, like we do use of force now, uh -huh. our anticipation is to have check boxes for vehicle pursuits just go straight in. So if there's a vehicle pursuit, you check a box, it opens up a form, and you fill out the CHP 1D7 form, it gets automatically routed to the state, and then we are able to collect that data and have our, our data analyst teams analyze it. But as of right now, we're still pen and paper. Uh, and that, as of last year, we had to catch up to all, all the paper submissions to CHP, and that's why the data for 2023 was uh, a little less than desired. But um, yeah. Okay, because it's man you're mandated to provide that data to the state? It is. Okay. Um, and then do we have the uh, data on the injuries suffered by th third party victims from these? So I think to tease that data out, the PDO, our police department only collisions, and that's the gray box there, and I don't have my uh, presentation up, but um, we, I would have to tease out the data and figure out uh, mine, the police department only collisions versus injury collisions on that data there. All right, thank you for your presentation. Sergeant, can we go to public comment? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item seven, the pursuit policy, please approach the podium. There is no public comment. Next item. Line item eight, discussion and possible action to approve revised Department General Order 7.04, safeguarding children of arrested persons, for the department to use in meeting and conferring with the affected bargaining units as required by law. Discussion and possible action. Good evening, uh, President Elias, Commissioners, Chief Scott, Director Henderson. Uh, my name is Tim O'Connor. I'm a lieutenant with the San Francisco Police Department, and I was the subject matter expert for Department General Order 7.04, Safeguarding Children of Arrested Persons. A little over two years ago, I convened a working group uh, with members from the following uh, city departments and agencies. Uh, the Family and Children Services, Child Protective Services, the Department of Public Health, the Human Services Agency, the City Attorney's Office, 
district attorney's office, uh, Department of Police Count Accountability, Director Kaywood, who was, was here, <laughs> uh, and Kara Lacey, who's the Police Department's Director of Constitutional uh, Policing. Uh, so as a result of the, uh, the, the new updated policy, um, I'll just give you a summary of, of, of what updates occurred. So the updates in this policy include establishing ex expanded definitions of child, parent, and caregiver to better align with San Francisco Admin Code 96. Uh, this establishes and clarifies procedures for members when planning an arrest or service of a warrant where a child is present, establishing or clarifying procedures for members making an arrest when a child is present, as well as when a child is not present, uh, establishing or clarifying procedures for members when determining the proper placement of a child of an arrested person, and finally, summarizing the reporting and documentation procedures. Okay, thank you. So we have the DGO before us. There are a few questions that I have on the, the DGO that I'm hoping maybe you can answer. So I, I noticed that in the purpose, that the purpose of the DGO is to minimize trauma experienced by a child witnessing um, their parent being arrested. And then it goes into the policy portion. It talks about that members shall contact FSC uh, even if there is another parent present in which the child can go to. Why is the requirement that FS, uh, F, FCS be contacted um, in these situations, especially when uh, if there's another parent on scene or another designee that can be um, given that it legally given permission to take the child. And the only reason I ask that is because we have a disparity, a race disparity when it comes to arrests and use of force. And so my concern is that if there's already a disparity with respect to arrests um, and uses of force against people of color, wouldn't this also, wouldn't this also affect that? Meaning, you know, why FCS has to be contacted in every single situation if there's already a designee or parent available? Yes, yeah, so uh, it's actually listed under uh, under placement. So that's one question that, that has come up in the past. It was part of the, uh, the, the public comment portion of this general order. Um, so I'll just read it verbatim. Uh, members shall conduct a preliminary criminal background check um, to determine if the person willing to take responsibility of the child has a history of child abuse or sexual abuse. Um, so it's, 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 it's a situation where a parent who is the legal parent of the, of, this, of the said child may not have custodial rights to the child based on uh, previous FCS history, or in this case, uh, if, if they have any history of sexual crimes, uh, sexual offender registration status, or history of violence against children would disqualify them from assuming responsibility for the child. So it's, it's, it's if you will, a check and balance. So we're not just releasing children, whether it, it may be to another parent, but that parent may uh, be disqualified from uh, from being uh, with that child based upon this criteria. But I think that it doesn't the policy say that the member, the, the police department or the police officer will run a preliminary background check, which would have that information. So yeah, why so, would you, well, why would you need FCS to also do it so, if so, the department is already doing so, it? So FCS is, is actually gonna have a, a history of reported instances with this with this family, if you will. So FCS is gonna have information on previous cases with regard to, to these parents. And that's not information the police department's gonna have 
at their beck and call. We're going to have to contact FCS to see if that secondary parent, caregiver, what have you, uh, can lawfully have possession of that child. And is this mandated by some sort of law, or is this just where did this requirement come from? It's policy of FCS. Ms. Kaywood, does DPA have a position on this? So we did discuss this uh, in concurrence, and we agree that the parent should be, that the non-arrested parent should assume custody of the child, but they have to determine that it's safe and rather have the officers do it. Uh, FCS has um, court orders that they can look to, to that uh, at least what was told to me is SFPD doesn't have all the re relevant records regarding court orders. So the purpose of contacting FCS would um, simply be to make sure that the secondary parent doesn't have any court orders limiting their contact with them. So it, it's expected to be quick. Um, I, I did discuss some proposed language with the Bar Association. Um, which we don't object to, but I think the concerns are addressed, addressed in the placement section of the DGO, uh, but they proposed like a modified sentence, which is fine. I think it just reinforces what the intent was. Do we, what is, or Chief? Oh, I was, I don't know what the modified language is, but I basically, Ms. Kaywood shared sure. a lot uh, of what I was about to say. Um, this is really about the protection of the child, and that's the intent of it. Um, yeah, we, we can access the criminal records, of course, but FCS is going to have things like neglect that may not be in our reporting system. We just want to ensure and have safeguards in place to make sure that, that child, the person that that child is released to is not being placed in harm's way. And it doesn't mean that a case is going to be initiated on, or anything like that. It's a fail-safe, basically. So, it, it's not, uh, yeah. Excuse me, FCS has more information than SFPD does, um, but we've conferred with the, the, bar, the dependency expert from the Bar Association, who I think is here, and the language they want to add is at, um, at the end of the 7.0403 policy section, um, just state this, so it would state this in full. Members shall contact FCS as soon as practical in all instances where a parent or other person who has responsibility for a child is arrested, regardless of whether the second parent is present, comma, for the purpose of ensuring that there's no legal barrier to the child's substitute caregiving arrangement. So we would support that language. It, that was definitely the intent of the DGO. Um, if that makes the, you know, the community more comfortable, we certainly have no objection to that. Chief, do you have an objection? Um, can you read it one more time? Because I think it, it shows you, out the intent of what we're trying to do here. Sure, and I did run it by the lieutenant as well. Uh, just to add a clause, uh, regardless of whether, let's see, members shall contact FCS as soon as practical in all instances where a parent or other person who has responsibility for a child is arrested, regardless of whether the second parent is present for the purpose of ensuring that there's no legal barrier to the child substitute caregiving arrangement. Yeah, and that was definitely what the intent was, but if that makes the community feel more comfortable that it's not gonna be this invasive process, we certainly would support the Bar Association's recommendation. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Okay. I, I don't think it, it, it still allows us to yeah. do what, what the intent was. And we've had extensive discussions and that was the intent. So. And you're comfortable yeah. with that, Lieutenant? Okay. Um, Okay, my Should I provide the language to the commission secretary? Yes, um, but I think that Commissioner Byrne is going to say that since there's an addition, he would want it posted for the public, which I, you know, I also don't have a problem with unless he's willing to agree to um, 
the change today, but we can talk about that in a minute. But let's, um, yes, give the language to uh, Sergeant Youngblood and then Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice Pres uh, President Elias. Uh, first, I want to commend the department for putting this together. There really is, um, it's an improvement uh, from the previous policy. And I did receive some, some feedback about how do we improve that policy statement um, so that we ensure that there isn't um, an increase, right, in, in removals of, of young people from their homes as a result of an arrest. Um, I did have a question um, for clarification purposes um, in 7044B2B, um, there's a, there's an instruction to have the officer determine whether the arrestee will be permitted to speak with the child. And I just want to get a sense of what the thought process is and in what instances wouldn't a child be allowed to speak to his arrested parent or caregiver. I think what, what that policy is, uh, is is getting at is if the parent is unable to, if the parent is, let's say, for instance, uh, resisting arrest um, in a highly agitated state, uh, maybe they, they've been put into a police wagon or in the back of a police car and, uh, you know, having a, them have access to the child would put the, the child in danger. I think that's that's where that, that, that piece of the policy was, was that's what it's, it's aiming to uh, to. To, to make clear, if that makes sense. Would it be helpful to add uh, maybe some examples of those circumstances just so that there is a little bit more clarity and instruction for the officers in those situations? I think so, yeah. I, um, that would be great. Uh, the next one is I would advise that we strike in uh, 7044BC uh, it starts when feasible, comma, members shall determine if the person being arrested and or family members are English language proficient. Now, as far as I understand, we, this is not a when feasible. Um, if we're to communicate with our constituents who have language access uh, barriers, I think it is a, you know, a, a mandatory expectation that they provide language assistance support. So I am going to encourage and move that we strike the when feasible sec element of that sentence and just assert that members need to be um, providing that language access whenever um, those instances occur. Isn't there the DGO chief that talks about language access in the requirements? It's referenced in there, actually. Yeah, okay. So I don't understand why the when feasible. Chief, do you have any uh, opposition or, or concerns uh, about that? Yes, Commissioner. Just the when feasible part in an arrest situation, particularly uh, depending on how volatile that situation is, it gives the officers the ability to do that without having to do other things. So um, there are times where that arrest has to be made right away. And so I, that, that's why that's there. It's not intended to, to not uh, respect the language or non-English uh, or English, uh, limited English proficiency uh, aspect of anybody. It, it really is there to allow the officers to make an arrest if you have that exigent, urgent situation where you have to do it like right now. So that's, that's really what that's about. Because this, remember, mind you, this section is all about making the arrest. It's not necessarily uh, 
depending on how dangerous the situation is, you know, you, you may not have the option to, to do all those things before you make an arrest. Would it, would you be amenable to introducing maybe language that says as soon as feasible? As soon as feasible. Yeah. I, yes. I mean, I think that basically in essence is, gives that same uh, flexibility. Thank you. Instead uh, of the when? Instead of okay. the when feasible, just so that there is the instruction to actually follow through as soon as the arrest is completed. Um, and I really, the piece around uh, God, kudos on section three in general about how to interface with a young person when they're present, I think that that's a really good instruction for the officers. Um, and I think the last one that I had was, so in this section uh, C around placement, the policy statement states that, and, and this is back to the point that was raised earlier, that we wanna have F FCS involved, is that the right acronym? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. We want to have FCS involved for this verification of an individual being able to receive um, the youth or the child. Um, but the whole placement section, you know, doesn't require them to contact FCS until I think number five. There is that. Uh, it, was that on purpose? Is there an, an exigency there, or or what is the reasoning behind? Um, allowing a an officer to make the placement with another parent in the absence of FCS's involvement. Well, if you look on page one uh, under policy A, uh, they're contacting FCS as soon as practical in all instances of, of a parent or other person who has responsibility of the child is placed under arrest. Uh, I think in the placement section, it just falls in line with the steps that, that they're taking. Um, so they're they're already mandated to contact FCS, uh, at, at, you know, as soon as practical. We're assuming the call has already been made. Yes. Okay. Um, I think those are uh, my questions. Thank you, Commissioner Byrne. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, President Elias, and thank you for <clears throat> raising that policy question. Uh, that's where mine are going, uh, Lieutenant. Approximately how long will FCS get back to an officer when somebody's arrested? It, it varies. Uh, they, they, if it's during business hours, it could be immediately. Uh, if it's in off hours, they, they have members who are on call. But I, I couldn't give you an exact time frame. So could it be hours? Could be. So um, I have a, a, a couple hypos then, okay? So let's assume there's an altercation outside um, uh, the child's residence. Both parents are present, and one parent uh, is arrested, say, for assault with a deadly weapon. Would, they, would the police let the child go back into the house um, with the mother, or would we have to wait? Say it happened late at night because alcohol was involved. Or would, that, or would that child have to stay outside and wait for FCS to get back? I think it's the hypothetical that the child staying outside. That's yeah. Not, I, I don't think anyone in this room or any police officer uh, would would want or allow a child to stay outside in the cold, if you will, if it's night, if it's at night. Um, so uh, I, I don't think there'd be a time frame of when and if they could stay outside. I think, you know, the, the safeguarding of the child is most important. Right. But 
where does the child go in the interim and how long does the child have to wait for the officer? Well, and that's just, because I, if you read the policy, maybe I, you know, I, I was coming up with hypos. You could be waiting a while for FCS and, and at some stage, the reasonable approach, at least in this instance, would be to let that child go with the other parent, assuming it's the mother, uh, and do the FCS report and then immediately go back in rather than wait for who knows how long for FCS to get back. Well, there hasn't been and, and then to punish an officer for not doing that when the reasonable thing to do, all things being equal, assuming it's the mother, maybe it's the father, is to let the child go in, do the FCS report. If something pops up, immediately go in and, and get the child back. But otherwise, that child could be waiting in a police car or outside, or the policeman would be in the house, I guess, watching the child uh, until such time. And, it, and I'm sure there are circumstances where the other parent is not appropriate, but it's not going to be most of the circumstances. And the child is obviously under, well, in many instances, the child will be undergoing trauma to see one of their parents arrested, handcuffed. You know, I know that the DGO goes to the... Um, to the fact that, uh, you know, try to keep the cuffing away. Uh, you know, and, and I salute that. But I, that, that scenario, and it's the same scenario in a drunk driving incident. If for some reason or another, uh, one of the drivers is driving and the other parent is sober, and of course should have been driving, and the child is in the back seat, the child's stuck when, the, when the, say, the other parent, the sober parent, could drive the child back home, or do we wait for FCS? assuming it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, I, I'm just, I mean, I, I just see the policy, and I could see an officer turn around and say, no, you, you go home, you, you take the child home, and then all of a sudden he's brought up for discipline because he violated the DGO, even though he did contact F, uh, FNA, excuse me, uh, the Family and, and Children's Services, FCS, I mean, I can just see those scenarios. The, I don't think that the police department would be unreasonable. I uh, would look at that and, and say, oh, yeah, we're going to charge them for violating it. But it still should be clear to the police officer. You know, I mean, anyway. Well, do I, let me ask you this, Commissioner Byrne. Do you have, because this is your DGO, do you have a policy or do you have language suggestions to insert? Yes. Well, my solution would be, to to immediately contact FCS, and then in the officer's discretion, if FCS does not come back within a half an hour, that the child be released to the parent in the officer's discretion. I would give the officer, I think the San Francisco police are well-trained, I would give the officer the discretion to um, to release the child to the other parent, and then if something comes up at SES, obviously to immediately turn around and come back. But I think that that would limit the trauma to the child. So it sounds like um, we need to add some language to this for clarification. So why don't we, why don't you submit your salute or your suggested language to the lieutenant and DPA and we can bring this back for finalization with the uh, included changes that were made and agreed to um, by the chief with respect to Ms. Kaywood's um, uh, language and Commissioner Yanez's suggestion. Does that sound good? 
right. I, I do understand the hypothetical, uh, but I think going back to what the, the chief referenced, the safeguarding of, of the child is, is what's paramount. And so I understand what you're saying about if FCS is not responding and what do you do with, with said child. Uh, the issue has come up and there have been instances in the past where this, this has occurred or by the fault of their own, the officer failed to contact FCS from the scene only to realize they needed to do it and they did it later and realized the parent they left the child with did not have you know, rights to have custody right. of, no. of the child. And then if they, in this, in this actual instance, they went back to the house and the child and the second parent were gone. So again, no. the, the safeguarding of, of the children, I think, is paramount. And I, I, don't, I, I don't think we but, can leave uh, without contacting FC, I, FCS. No. I, I, He's saying put restrictions on it or time. Time, true. And I, I agree with the hypothetical, yeah. but the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm stating no, that I agree if, we, if we do leave the, the child with the parent without contacting FCS to get that court order history, only to find out later. No, he's saying contact FCS immediately. No, true. But, then you but give I, the, the, time hy after. the hypothetical was if they don't respond in time to, right. to use the discretion to leave the child. Right, because at some stage, if it if it's if it's hours. Oh no, I understand. But, you but know, I, it's but, two o'clock in the morning, and you know, what for whatever reason, whoever's on call doesn't get back. True, but my contention is seven if, in the morning. If in fact they do leave the child with that parent, only to later find out. That the child does not have custodial rights to the, or the parent doesn't have custodial rights to the child, and they go back, and then the child and, the, and that parent are gone, then the, the liability is completely on the officer, which opens up the officer to complaints. I, I, to I agree. Legal otherwise. I, I agree with you. But at the same time, if FCS say it's 12 midnight and they'll get back to you at seven in the morning, um, in other words, there's a balancing that has to go on here. In other words, I agree that you exactly what you just said, but there has to be a balance. And the officer that followed the DGO and then the parent abscounded, would not the burden, because if, if FCS is told of this policy, hey, you need to have somebody get back within half an hour or within an hour, then is it the officer's responsibility that they did not get back? Because you then use the word discretion. Remember, it's not that he has to release the child. It's in his discretion or her discretion to release the child. That was the language that, of where I was looking at. It's not like you shall release. You give the officer discretion because if he thinks and he has a reasonable suspicion to believe, hey, this other parent may be dangerous and FCS hasn't got back, I'm not comfortable, then fine, give him the discretion. But if he believes that the parent, which will probably be most of the instances, is trustworthy enough, and FCS for whatever drops the ball, then I, then I believe that, uh, that the child should be released. And if, God forbid, something happened, would not, where would the scandal be? Wouldn't be on the San Francisco police. It would be on FCS because they did not get back in a reasonable time to tell us what's going on. No, and I, again, this this is a discussion. It seems like the policy is not ready, so let's take it back. Director okay. Henderson. Thank you. Okay, great. Vice President Carter Oberstone. Yeah, I just want to say one thing on this. I think Commissioner Burns' hypothetical is one worth considering. I, I would just, and maybe the language that he proposed is will be ultimately the language that this commission decides on. I would just really urge 
the department and DPA and the other partners who are part of this drafting process to just go back and thoroughly research this, including just, you know, the whole hypothetical is premised on the notion that FCS could take hours to get back, but figuring out what the response time and staffing actually is, and then looking at what, what best practices are, because I just, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that we would make a change like this on the fly because it's it could right. be a life and death situation. So however long it takes us to get to the right answer, I think that's the most important thing. I don't think this item needs to be back immediately. Um, I, I just wanna make sure we get this right. Chief. Thank you, uh, President Elias. I, I just want to support what Lieutenant O'Connor said. I mean, and I definitely understand what Commissioner Byrne is saying, but the bottom line on these things, and those of us that have been in these situations, you wait. You wait until you are absolutely sure that there's no risk to that child. And sometimes that is very painful. Uh, it sucks up, you know, officers in deployment, but it's, it's the right thing to do. So I just want to support what Lieutenant O'Connor is saying in terms of the risk of, because I've been in that situation, and you go back and you cannot find that child or that parent that you released them to. So. I know it's, uh, I, I definitely understand the spirit of what's been proposed here, but we have to wait in those situations. No, I agree. And I think that's why we just need a little clarification on language. So let's take it back to the drawing board. Let's finalize it. Uh, Commissioner Byrne will provide some additional language for DPA and the department, Lieutenant O'Connor to review, come to consensus. If not, just bring it back before the commission. We'll take a vote. Thank you for your hard work. Thank you for this. Um, DGO, it appears that there was a lot of effort and thought that went into this. Thank you very much. Ms. Kaywood? Just quickly, if I could uh, thank the lieutenant for, he's been really great to work with. We've had a lot of discussions and gone round and round and public comment and he's just been great. So I just want to thank him for the collaboration. Thank you. I know it's not easy dealing with some people. <laughs> All right, uh, public comment. For members of the public who would like to make public comment regarding line item eight, please approach the podium. Good evening, commissioners and President Elias, uh, Director Henderson and Chief Scott. My name is Zabrina Alaguire and I direct the Dependency Representation Program for at the San Francisco Bar Association. So we arrange court-appointed attorneys for all children who are taken into uh, family and children's services custody and removed from their home. We also appoint counsel to all of their parents who cannot afford their own lawyers, which is the vast majority of these cases uh, in a system um, that I appreciate President Elias uh, acknowledged um, does disproportionately affect not only low-income communities, but our communities of color. And so um, I speak tonight um, out of my uh, expertise in this field um, when children are taken into protective custody um, as an attorney for uh, 17 years for parents and children, and also um, as a concerned resident of San Francisco, and also as an author, uh, the author of a policy brief on model policies to care for children during the time of arrest, um, which I can display if that would be helpful here. So I'm here to, uh, raise concern about the um, proposed changes, um, and I do endorse the amendments that were discussed um, to allow for discretion to officers to release to uh, a 
responsible caregiver or parent um, at the time. And um, my concern um, with the added section A under um, section three um, is that um, a mandate to report um, all, such, all instances in which a parent or caregiver is arrested to family and children's services without any clarifiers or identification of a safety risk um, to children is overbroad and may put um, our children who are in a traumatic situation um, at risk of further destabilization um, if we're not careful to cabin that language. And I'm happy to Well, th thank you for being here. Thank you for giving us some of this information. What I am going to do is encourage you to contact Lieutenant O'Connor, Lieutenant, if you can, uh, and uh, Ms. Kaywood from DPA. Um, and again, they're going to give the language, and then you can go ahead and uh, consult and speak with them and then provide your expertise given your many years of experience in this area um, and experience with FCS um, and perhaps... Uh, ease Commissioner Burns' concerns and hypotheticals that he's given today. Yes, thank you. Okay, great. Um, if I may, also, I'm, I'm aware that the original policy um, that was adopted was done so with tremendous community input um, through the San Francisco Children of Incarcerated Parents Partnerships. I've been a member of those partnerships, and I wish to make sure that um, the original intent and guidance from the affected communities um, is carried through in terms of any revisions that are put forward. And I have all confidence in Lieutenant O'Connor and Ms. Kaywood to accomplish that. Thank you so Thank much. You. All right. Next item. Line item nine, discussion and possible action to approve revised Department General Order 9.05, citation control, for the department to use a meeting conferring with the affected bargaining units as required by law. Discussion and possible action. Good evening, Ms. President. Uh, good evening, Mr. Vice President, commissioners. Director Henderson, Chief Scott. My name is Officer Crispin Jones. I work at the traffic company for the San Francisco Police Department, and I'm here tonight to present DGO 9.05, Citation Control, for your approval and possible adoption. I see no names in the queues. Oh, uh, I, I've... Commissioner Byrne. Just one question. Yes, Do motorcycle guys have printers on their, uh, on their motorcycles now to print tickets? I do. I have one that's assigned to me. And, does, and, and do they work? And it works. In, in the weather and all that, huh? Yes. Okay. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So glad we got to the bottom of that. With that, um, I will uh, make a motion to adopt the DGO. I'll second. Oh, just for clarity, oh, we're sending this to meet and confer. It's to meet and confer. Meet and confer. Oh, I'm sorry. You're going to do your... Yeah, I was going to say, uh, with the reference to our labor negotiation resolution 23-30. If any member of the public would like to make public comment regarding line item 9, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Um, on the motion, Commissioner Benedicto, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is Yes. Or a quorum. Or four. Okay. Commissioner. Commissioner Byrne. Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee. Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Overstone. Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have four yeses. 
All right, line item 10, discussion and possible action to approve revised Department General Order 2.06, vehicle crashes involving employees, for the department to use in meeting and conferring with the affected bargaining units as required by law. Discussion and possible action. Good evening, Vice President, Police Commissioners, Director Henderson and Chief Scott. Um, here to present vehicle crashes involving our members, and this encompasses uh, civilian members and sworn members of the department. Hopefully it clarifies each everybody's role and who needs to do what when these circumstances do occur. This does encompass um, within our city and outside jurisdictions, uh, whether it's a termination of a pursuit or whatever other investigative function. Um, so hopefully this is clear and this hopefully will get pushed on to meet and confer. Uh, Commissioner Byrne. Um, thank you, uh, Vice President. Um, on page five, number three, um, so if an officer is not at fault in a crash, he can't drive for five days unless yeah. he gets a special exemption? Yes, that, that has been the, the policy for a long time. Um, if there's no fault on the officer, then we're hoping to have that exemption be dropped down to a quick decision by somebody at command staff. And it has to, yeah, but it has to go all the way to at least a commander. It, exactly. Wouldn't, it does. A, wouldn't a captain be good enough, like? I mean, this, this he, is what was discussed uh, during concurrence, and this was what was agreed upon. That's uh, a little outside of my. Um, ability to de make that that determination, but uh, it was it has been dropped down to a commander. Okay, so it's actually gone down. It I, has I, gone down. I, I mean, other than that, I, I, I'm fine with it. It just seems seems almost bureaucratic uh, in those instances. Like it just doesn't seem. Well, doesn't th there's seem other investigative processes for policy violations and everything else that has to transpire during that time. So that may not occur right away if the officer, for example, is injured or can't no, give a statement right away. Right? Assuming no injury and the officer's assuming not at fault. Assuming no injury. And the officer's not at fault. Right. There still may be some policy in, in investigative um, okay. determinations. Right. Legally, the officer may not be at fault for the collision, but there may be a policy violation. All right, thank you. Vice President Carter Overstone. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Just just one question in the definition section, the definition of crash. Is this something that we wrote ourselves or is this taken from state law or this is taken from the CHP collision manual. They set the bar on collision investigation statewide. We use their forms. This is virtually their exact definition of what a crash is. Okay. It just, if that's what it is, then it, it makes perfect sense for us to use it. It does strike me as very broad. Um, it would encompass things that I think most people would not think is a crash. I mean, I think this would encompass vandalism of your car, for example, on your private property, since it's a unintended event resulting in property damage on your private property, for example. Well, unintended event involving motor vehicle and transport. 
right? Th right? This isn't involving just somebody coming up and damaging your vehicle. This has to be some type of vehicular right. movement that right. okay, resulted in damage. But it would also encompass like pulling out of your driveway and a tree falling on your car, for example. Those are a little bit different. That is a, not a foreseeable event by the driver. Just, just like having a medical episode when you get into a car is not a foreseeable event. So if an officer has a heart attack, for example, which, or, or some other medical event and results in a collision, that is outside of the officer's control. Right. Okay. Well, if it's good enough for CHP, I, I understand why it's good enough for us. Um, <laughs> just wanted to ask. Thank you. Sergeant, public comment? members of the public they like to make oh so, i'm sorry. sorry no that was my bad i'm sorry yes commission i did he took me off the head. mic sorry. okay sorry <laughs> it's okay uh thank you president elias uh question uh what is this b4 uh if the department vehicle is disabled would not be needed for investigation notify the tow desk employees submit a memorandum to their commanding officer you know as soon as possible uh, include the name, address, phone number, driver's license number, and insurance company of the other party in the crash, the extent of damage to property, and describe any injuries. It, it doesn't seem to cover, I think, uh, Vice President Carver, Carter Oberstone res, referred to the incident that happened when a car crashed into Luca. It doesn't seem to cover uh, standing objects that are not necessarily involved in a crash that wasn't caused by the vehicle or by the driver. And you're looking at page three, page section four. B? Page three, the last sentence, it describes when and the information that's supposed to be included in the memorandum. Okay. Uh, but it's very specific to a, a crash with another vehicle. In the instance of the Luca situation, there was no driver impacted, but yet there should be a memorandum that is generated. Um, is that on purpose, or can we expand this to include, you know, a crash into a, I don't know, a pole or a building or something so, that does not include another driver? Okay. Um, if you flip the page to page four, in that paragraph, it does refer to um, property damage, and property can be any property damage. We do, unfortunately, crash into buildings and other inanimate objects as a re result of police work, and it's not very uh, effective use of space to try to outline all those objects, whether it's a muni shelter, a house, a warehouse, you, what have you. So I think that's generally understood. If a crash involves a police car, whatever it crashes into, whether it's a police car, another vehicle, a motorcycle, a house, a fire hydrant, that will by default be included in that memorandum. Okay. Um, there was one other item. The mandatory screening, G1, mandatory screening and analysis for drugs and alcohol is required when a member is operating a motor vehicle directly involved in a vehicular crash that results in death or an injury requiring transport. Um, is there a reason why this only applies to when there is an injury or a death 
or something that requires medical attention? So that is going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, oh, whatever is actually our current uh, MOU governing when this type of screening needs to take place. Your MOU with the POA? Correct. And does that include um, any crash, or in this instance, is it limited to when there's someone injured? When there's someone injured, okay. Um, if there's no injury, then there, there is no mandate for that currently. Was there consideration, and would you have an opinion on that, Chief? Would you uh, feel that it is overly intrusive or uh, time-consuming or cost, uh, create a burden to have someone who doesn't, you know, who's involved in a crash, but there is no injury, go through the same procedure as someone that um, did cause an injury? Um, oh, well, not overly intrusive, but that was and is still is a bargainable item that, um, mind you, when this policy was being crafted, I believe we were in the middle of the negotiation between the city and the police officer association on the current contract. Okay. We decided to leave that to that uh, and not, because we can't change the policy, you know, change the MOU through through a DGO, so would it be overly, overly intrusive? I, I don't, I don't, it's not my opinion that it's overly intrusive, but it is my opinion that I think it would be um, overly burdensome for the department based on what's at stake. I mean, non-injury, I mean, I think the whole idea is that the, the when you get in, involved in a vehicle crash that involves injuries, you wanna make sure that the employee is not under the influence. Um, we crash cars, you know, often, not often, but periodically. So I do think that would be uh, administratively a big deal for this department. Not to say that it's overly intrusive, but, and it's a, it's an item that would have to go through that bargaining process as well. So we didn't want to put anything in this policy that would jeopardize the policy by having to bargain the actual MOU. Not, not meet and confer, but the MOU itself. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. I think those are my questions. Thanks. I need a motion. Oh. oh. I'll make a motion to uh, approve the general order for use of meet and confer subject to our labor negotiations resolution 23-30. Second. Members of the public who would like to make public comment regarding line item 10, please approach the podium. Seeing none. On the motion, Commissioner Benedicto, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Lias? Yes. President Lias is yes. You have six yeses. On item 11, discussion and possible action to adopt revised department general order 3.13 field training program. Uh, discussion and possible action. Good evening, President, Vice President, Sojourn Buddy, Commissioners, Director, and Chief Scott. <laughs> I'm Lieutenant Lisa Springer, and I was formerly in charge of the field training program, and I am just here for discussion and possible action to adopt general order, revised general order 3.13, 
for the field training program. One question I had, and um, Chief, this is a long, a long time ago when um, Commissioner Hamasaki and I met with um, <clears throat> members. I think it, I can't remember who we were, I think it was um, AC Flaherty was in that discussion, I think. But we had talked about um, the field training program and what happens when officers who are the subjects of the field training officers, you know, they, there's a process that they're able to report um, to the department if, you know, um, in terms of like how their treatment was or, or if they, there were any issues that they wanted to address without fear of retribution from the FTO or the department. And I think one of the discussions that came up was what, what type of safeguards you were gonna put into place on the field training officers to ensure that there were no retribution or issues with um, the officers who are the subject, you know, the, the training officers uh, during this time. And I think one of the things that came up was evaluations, like the evaluations of the field training officers. And I noticed that in this DGO uh, page three of four, it talks about the removal and decertification of FTOs. And I'm wondering if there's an evaluation process um, that is done or can be done to help ensure that um, the, the officers that are the subject of these FTOs you know, if, if they're raising concerns or that those concerns are heard. Is that making sense? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, that, it is making sense. I, I, and correct me if I'm not interpreting what you just asked correctly. So if in the, in the example that you just gave, um, let's say a, a, a person being trained reports that their field training officer is doing something that's just not right. appropriate. Right. Um, so that would be investigated, and this policy actually gives gives the department the ability to address that situation, either temporarily suspend the FTO from training or permanently. Okay, that's where the OIC and the field training. Yes. Okay. All right. Are there, okay. okay. Yeah. So that that is this translates to your concern and that that discussion, uh, and so it, it does, and it also codifies the process of how that happens, the decertification process. If it's a discipline case, for instance, we've had discipline cases where somebody was decertified or pulled from the, the uh, field training. So it just, it really codifies all that and I think it makes it a lot clearer, but it does give the department uh, through the field training program the ability to investigate those types of things, even if it's not necessarily discipline and then take, take whatever action is needed and necessary and appropriate. Okay, because it's not tied to discipline, meaning you can decertify them and remove them from the program based on any concern you have or complaint you receive. Correct, and it says, you know, failing to perform their duties in a, in a satisfactory manner. So if it's something that does not equate to discipline, but it's detrimental or uh, contrary to what the FTO is, is supposed to be doing, they can still be either temporarily or permanently decertified. Okay, because my concern is I want safeguards in place for officers who, we want them to report things that they see that, you know, that could be problematic right. without fear of retribution or being punished or labeled or anything within their workplace. Yes. So, okay. All right. That was my only question. Any other one? No. Can I? Can, <laughs> Mr. Benedicto. Yes, I, 
Um, we'll make a motion shortly. I just want to look, uh, make a quick comment and note that this is uh, an important DJO. The field training program is, is hugely important to our officers uh, receive their training, especially now when we're trying to increase our recruitment retention. I'm glad that we're adopting it tonight. Like the other DGOs we voted on tonight, it dates back to the 90s, and so we continue to make progress on not having DGOs from the 1990s uh, on the books. Um, I, I do want to note that this was adopted on January 18th of 2023, and it was adopted unanimously. It sat uh, in the meeting confer process for a long time with no uh, significant changes, and I see no reason this should have taken this much time, and I continue uh, to urge uh, our friends at the POA to work collaboratively with us so we can move these DGOs through quickly, uh, particularly the vast majority that are not that are generally agreed upon, that are uh, written with significant collaboration from the Department of DPA uh, to reduce those times that these general orders sit and meet and confer. I have sat here and applauded the POA when I felt like we've had good collaboration. I think that there have been times where we have, but I think um, by that same token, it's incumbent to call out when I think there's a necessary delay. And um, just, I was shocked. I thought it was a typo when I saw this on the agenda and saw that it was previously approved uh, almost uh, one year ago. But with that, I will make a motion to uh, for final adoption of Department General Order 3.13. Second. Sergeant. Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 11, please approach the podium. There is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Benedicto, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have six yeses. Line item 12, discussion and possible action to adopt Revised Department General Order 7.03, Information Dissemination Regarding Registered Sex Offenders, Megan's Law. Discussion and possible action. Good evening. Good evening, President, Vice President, Commissioners, Chief Scott. I'm Sergeant Charles Collins of the San Francisco Police Department Sex Offender Unit, and I'm here to answer any last-minute questions regarding Department General Order 7.03. Seeing none, it was that great of a job you did. <laughs> We're going to take it. Uh, can I get a motion? Motion. I'll motion it. And second by second. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto, Sergeant. For members of the public, would like to make public comment regarding line item 12. Please approach the podium. Seeing none. On the motion, Commissioner Benedicto, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have six yeses. Line item 13, public comment on all matters pertaining to item 15 below closed session, including public comment on item 14, vote whether to hold item 15 in closed session. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium. There's no public comment. Line item 14, vote on whether to hold item 15 in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code Section 67.10, action. Motion to hold item 15 in closed session. Second. Can I get a second? Second. On the motion, Commissioner Benedicto, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? 
Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone. Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. President Elias. Yes. President Elias is yes. You have six yeses. We are going into closed session. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
No, it says still nine, uh, fifteen minutes. No, nope, fifteen. We're going minutes. Nine. All right, commissioners, we are back in open session on line item sixteen. Vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item fifteen held in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code section sixty-seven point one two A. Action. Motion to not disclose closed session, with the exception of. Uh, Item 15C, where there will be uh, factual information provided with the minutes. Second. Any member of the public would like to make public comment regarding line item 16, please approach the podium. Seeing no public comment on the motion, Commissioner Benedicto, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. You have five yeses. Line item 17, adjournment. Daisy, I almost stole the purple folder. I was impressive we got that done.